Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. What is up, Gypsy Gang, and welcome back to another episode of the Gypsy Tales podcast. My guest today is the American road racing legend, Ben Spees. Ben has had multiple AMA Superbike championships to his name, and his battles with teammate Matt Maladdon are the stuff of legend. He also found success in both the World Superbike Championship and the pinnacle of two-wheeled road racing in MotoGP. Ben was forced to retire after an injury to his shoulder, but has since spent his time raising a family on his property in his home state of Texas and has recently announced a new team management role that sees his expertise and experience return to the AMA paddock. This was a great three hours of conversation with a truly great guy. If you want to hear an ad-free version of this podcast as well as get early access to these episodes plus unique original Gypsy Tales video content, then make sure you head to gypsytales.com. It's only $11.99 a month and the money from the site goes directly into our content budget to bring you more of the shows you love. We're just about to upload shows with Cam Zink, Coach Rob Beams and Bomb Hole host Chris Grenier. Now, I used to lean heavily on caffeine because I was tired all the time, especially when traveling. That is, until I started incorporating AG1 into my daily routine. I now wake up every morning and drink a glass of water with AG1 mixed in. This nutritional supplement now replaces the caffeinated drinks I used to have. I've been able to significantly reduce my caffeine intake by supporting my body's foundational needs, allowing me to feel more focused and energetic throughout the day. Along with replacing some of my caffeine intake, AG1 has also replaced my daily multivitamin supplements, providing me with all the benefits of those in just one scoop of AG1. It really just makes my life so much easier and my body feels so much better. Along with that, AG1 just tastes really good, so it's not hard to down a glass of it in the morning. Overall, this product is made very well and is recommended by scientists and doctors, and it is made out of ingredients that are body compatible and easily absorbed. If you haven't tried AG1 in place of your caffeinated drinks or daily multivitamins, it's a must. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash gypsytales. That's drinkag1.com slash gypsytales. 
It's not a bird, it's not a plane, it's a ball trimmer sent from space. Gentlemen, our friends at Manscaped have been working night and day to bring you a below-the-waist grooming experience like none other with their brand new Performance Package 5.0 Ultra, featuring the Lawnmower 5.0. We're talking about a next-generation trimmer with interchangeable blade heads for whatever shave your mind can imagine. Upgrade your grooming game to the Ultrasphere this year by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code GYPSYGANG. High tech for low places with Manscaped. Now, AI is cool and all, but I think this really might be the biggest technological advancement the world has ever seen. Every man knows just how scary it can get when going for a close shave below the belt. That's why I trust Manscaped for all my sensitive areas. Inside this package, you'll find the star of the show, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. Their fifth generation trimmer features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little of the top off and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. There's also dual LED spotlights and also inside this package features the Weed Whacker 2.0 Ear, Nose and Hair Trimmer crop preserver ball deodorant crop soother toner and two free gifts the manscape boxes 2.0 and the shed 2.0 travel bag which has come in majorly handy to me in 2023 get 20% off plus free shipping with the code gypsygang at manscape.com that's 20% off plus free shipping with the code gypsygang at manscape.com i can promise you've never seen a ball trimmer look like a spaceship Get yours today from our folks at Manscaped. We're also brought to you by our longtime friends at Boost Mobile, and now has never been a better time to switch to Boost. Why is that, you ask? Well, this month there were nationwide outages on another network in Australia, and in the five years that I've been with Boost Mobile, I've never experienced such an outage. Secondly, Boost Mobile are gearing up for their biggest sale of the year right now over at boost.com.au for their Black Friday deals. You can save up to 15% on refurbished devices, which I've actually run for years now, as well as up to 65% off selected SIM cards. For example, you can get the 260 gigabyte of data for just $250 on a 12-month paid upfront SIM card. Or, if you aren't that data hungry, you can get 50 gigabytes for just $12. The SIM sale ends on the 27th of November. Terms and conditions apply. To be on the full Telstra network with no lock-in contracts, plus free shipping, you really can't go wrong with Boost Mobile. Head to boost.com.au to find out more. We're also brought to you by the team at Fist Handwear, the original glove company and by far the best in the game. Head to fisthandwear.com and use the code GYPSYGANG for 15% off. And last but not least, we are brought to you by Tropical Auto Group in Rockhampton. If you're in the market for a new or used car, head to tropicalauto.com.au and ask for Kyle. That's it from me. Enjoy this awesome episode with Ben Spees. All right, Ben Spees is joining us on Gypsy Tales, and I am extremely excited for this one, mate. We met at the uh, Alps party a few weeks ago, 60 years of Alpine Stars. You're yep. a long-time Alpine Stars ambassador, and uh, 
I don't know. We probably could have done a podcast right there and then. So yeah. the combo <laughs> was blown. We had but, a good conversation. It was good. But uh, yeah, you've made a trip out to California. Obviously, it's like some big news. You've gone on a bit of a work trip on a press tour yeah. as such. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited to have you on the podcast, mate. Awesome. So uh, do we just start with the Moto America stuff? Kind of big big news in uh, in your world, big news in Moto America world that mm-hmm. um, you're you're a boss now. You're, you're, the, you're the boss man. Yeah. Um, you know, right now, kind of putting everything together, you know, from the, from the, not the outside, but just kind of the top with the personnel and the, the riders and everything. So it's, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a really, you know, good thing. Um, I got called by someone with Ducati and, and kind of asked me, you know, would you think about managing a team? And I just, I said, no, like not, not be a manager now. Um, but I said, I can wear, you know, three or four hats within the team and, and definitely do something. And then that turned into um, talking with Graham and Bobby, you know, and, and getting stuff sorted out. And, and, uh, you know, here we are. So we're putting together a, you know, 600 super sport team for, for next year, uh, two riders, you know, aspirations, obviously with everybody involved is to go super bike in 2025. Um, but we got to, you know, do everything right, raise the money and sponsors and all that kind of stuff. But everything sorted for next year and uh, the riders are close to being announced and um, I'm stoked with that I mean it's kind of both of my first picks you know for the for the ride so it's um, looking forward to it it's it's a lot of work you know I've never been in that position before but I know once we get to the track and testing that's when you know I can do a lot more and, and help with the team and and do that stuff so yeah I'm looking forward to it that's cool man and so Moto America's been on a pretty big come up recently really like i mean for me watching like i said josh heron like there's a couple of dudes and i think the baggers kind of added yep. a little bit of visibility mm-hmm. to it as well um so yeah it sort of seems like it's kind of on the come up and then i think like having your name attached to a team now it's sort of it seems like it's trending yeah i mean it, it does look like that and i hope with the ray halls coming in and and me being attached to it it can draw other other sponsors and other other teams in so um, but yeah, definitely the last kind of three years, you know, there's been an uptick, you know, in seeing the fans at the races and, and all that stuff. So this is, I think the perfect time, you know, for something like this to happen and, and, uh, I look forward to, you know, being back at the track again. And the IndyCar guys, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Bobby Rahal, you know, legend in, in IndyCars and, and then Graham's the son, they're uh, very business minded, have a lot of stuff going on and, and Graham has two Ducati stores. Yeah. So made sense for him to do this and he's always been a big, you know, fan of racing and I think um, once you're a Ducati guy too, like you're just a Ducati guy. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And they're and they're you know, they're racers. They like to win and and um when we started talking about it and, and me being part of the team and trying to put the mechanics together that I I wanna go for, you know, it's uh it starts to be a pretty cool project. Man, I'm excited for you, like, especially kind of coming out of nowhere too. Like, I, it's not like I mean, you're mm-hmm. living on a ranch in Texas. You got horses. <laughs> yeah. and you got two daughters. And, you know, so it's like you kind of were just cruising, doing your thing. But I yeah. bet, I bet, uh, I guess sometimes in life you get a kind of cool opportunity and and you know see where it goes. Yeah, there just there hadn't been too many opportunities in the states. Um, there would have been a couple in Europe, but. For me, flying is not my favorite thing to do. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it'd be a lot of flying for, for the work. And I just, if I lived in Europe, it could happen, but obviously don't. So, you know, just kind of been the last 10 years, been retired and raising the girls and working out on my land, getting it kind of fixed up. We're building a house out there. And, and then this call came and 
you know, I sat down with my wife and I'm like, what do you think about it? And she's like, you're 39. And she's like, now you got the land all fixed up nice. You're going to have a lot more spare time again. Mm. She's like, do it, you know. Um, and like I said, it's the it's a perfect role for me. In the beginning, it's going to be a lot of work, you know, getting everything ready and getting the manager in position and all that stuff. And then once that's sorted, it'll get a little easier. Yeah. But um, but I think it's, you know, like I said, it's going to be a lot of work till Daytona in March. And then once we start getting to the track and racing, I hope everything gets a lot more, you know, normalized and, and um, stuff like that. How many rounds do the Moto America guys do? So there's there's ten total, um, including Daytona. Um, so so yeah, we're we're kind of it's pretty much the same tracks that I I think one or two are a little different, but pretty much the same tracks I grew up racing and and uh, raced on in the AMA days. So what's the difference between the AMA stuff that you cut your teeth on to the Moto America stuff now? Uh, it's pretty similar. It's the, is it kind yeah, of the equivalent? It's kind of the same. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like the super bike class in Moto America. That's basically what I did, you yeah. know, back in in the, you know, 2005 to eight days. Um, and the spec of bike is really close to world super bike. Yep. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same. Yeah, nice. And I feel like doing it from Texas is probably like a pretty good way to do it too. You're sort of like in the middle and because mm-hmm. just the, I think the travel is, I'm thinking moto, like that's 31 races. So it's 10 not as bad, but I yep. guess you add in the testing and all that sort of stuff as well. But at least you're kind of central for the, for the travel. The longest flight I think I have is like three and a half hours yeah, and that's, exactly. that's one really. That's so manageable. Mo- mostly kind of a couple hour flights. And again, I'm not the biggest fan of flying and traveling, but the way it was in Europe and got you used to something so crazy and Dude. so many flying hours. And with this, it's just, it's like, nah, it's not that bad. I mean, were you going private back then? Like, was that a, was that a thing? Uh, we, a couple private flights in Europe, you know, to, to a couple tracks that were hard to get to, or it was a long three hour drive from the airport. Yeah. Um, but now mainly it's just kind of the, the nice business stuff and the, the good airlines and I mean it was a way to travel it was nice but in the same time when you're training as much as you're doing you're traveling as much as you are you know the plane rides it's like you're trying to recover trying to sleep I was never comfortable in planes so it you know it made it tough and I think um, we kept our ticket stubs from one year and I think we came up with we flew 550 hours a year and that's basically a month in the plane yeah, without yeah. airport time you know all the layovers so it's it'll it'll wear on you i don't think people understand the grind in in that way you mm-hmm. know like just the what you get used to when you do the moto gp circuit or the f1 circuit mm-hmm. i mean the motocross and supercross in the u.s is gnarly but dude and then like the visa stress like i mean half the paddock couldn't even get visas for india i yeah. heard and you know it is just an absolute beast of a schedule that you have to do to be at that level and that's what that's what a lot of people you know when i talk to them they're like oh you get to you know travel the world and see all these places and all this kind of stuff which you do i mean mm. you know you get to see a lot of stuff but most of the time you know you're flying in on a wednesday jet lagged of some sort you know at least half the races obviously in the schedule you are and then thursday it's team meetings it's media stuff friday practice saturday qualifying racing sunday racing and then you fly out monday so it's it's bang 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 and um 
you know, you're, like I said, the whole jet lag with training and just everything. I mean, it's a, you're always kind of recovering. And you're you not know? in, you're never in a tourist headspace either. No, no. I'm, no, like I'm you're not. so zoned in. Yeah, it's not, you know, now it's like I, I love thinking back in some of the places and I'm going to a lot of the places again with the family or vacationing. But, you know, for me, I was like ultimate tunnel vision about racing. So, Oh, uh, we, you know, we're flying in Wednesday to, to go do this and go see this. I'm like, I'm flying in Wednesday and I'm going to the house to rest, yeah. you know? So I was kind of, you know, wouldn't say bad about that, but that's what my focus was. Yeah. Um, so it's, like I said, I would never take it back. And a lot of people won't, you know, that's in that position, but it is a bit more work, you know, than people think, especially the F1 guys and, and the GP schedule. I mean, it's a, it's a gnarly travel schedule. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's one of those things where you, you don't know, how you react to it mm-hmm. until you're kind of in it, you know? Well, and like, I mean, I say it again, I was, I was so scared of flying in America that, you know, when I lived in Texas and we had a two day test at Laguna Seca, I would drive, you you're know, scared of flying. I know I'm weird. <laughs> <laughs> I trust me that I wish that I wasn't, but it's just from a young age and a control thing, yeah. you know, yeah. and I don't like being over the ocean for a long time. And that happens a lot. <laughs> You know, and they pull back the throttle. I'm kind of like, hey, dude, don't do that. You know, I just <laughs> keep I, her wed, no, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't stand it. But, um, but you know, the reason I went over there was because basically the economy in 08 when it crashed, huh. you know, so I'm, I'm riding in the middle of the year and, and, uh, the Suzuki president calls me and he said, you know, if you want to continue making good money where you can retire at a decent age and be okay with everything, you have to go to Europe. You got to do it. And this was before we even started talking about the next years or anything. And he just gave me a warning, basically, you know, so I contacted a couple teams and um, the Yamaha World Superbike thing, you know, happened. And, and that's what it was. That's why I went over there, basically, because it was, you know, I wasn't going to be able to make the money that I was making in the States. And I know that racing, you get to, you know, 35 yeah, kind of max, window. you know, you've, you've got a window and, and I just, I had to make good money and do it. And I had fun, but I had some shots earlier to go to Europe and I didn't really jump on them because I had a pretty good life. I mean, yeah. it was a bus in America with my dog and just drove everywhere. I didn't have to get on a plane. I could yeah. take my time. I had my bicycles with me. I could train all that kind of stuff. And then the economy got, you know, smoked everything down in America. And it was like, you got to go do something. So you know, I always said that it wouldn't stop me and it didn't, you know, but it was, it made it difficult for sure. Man. I, yeah. That's crazy to think. I mean, it makes total sense now. I mean, I know it's, it sounds ridiculous when you're riding 200 and you're doing all the stuff, but just, you know, riding in planes and, and going back to that flying private when I can see what's going on. Yeah. You're sweet. I'm yeah, fine. Yeah. But you know, when I'm sitting back there and like I said, they pull the throttle back and you're over the Atlantic in the middle of it it's like no dude don't just keep it right there you can you know I just that that sound would mess me up so I didn't get to rest a lot on the planes like I would see other people mm. sleeping and you know I would say oh bro I'm out oh no I'm done no, no soon I'm, as soon as I'm on that plane fucking say a no no I'm like gripping things like on <laughs> no takeoff oh yeah 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 <laughs> That's yeah. insane. So that's, a, that's again, what some people, they kind of know it, but they probably don't understand that it messed with me that bad. And <sighs> and I feel like a puss, but it's just... No, I mean, everyone's got the way thing. it is. Like, but isn't it insane to think of just how much shit could kill you every single day oh, that, I know. that you're alive? Like, every time you get... We drove back from... Um, but at least, like, I feel like I have some control. Control over other stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I'm in the plane... 
I just, I've always kind of looked at it like, you know, when I get in those positions. Yeah, you just sign your life over. I want somebody to, like, really well qualified, you know, like somebody on a dirt bike or me on a, like somebody that really knows what they're doing. And I look at the numbers and I see how many pilots are out there. And it's like, you know, I hate to say it, but there's a lot of normal you people, know, people yeah, that, yeah, know, yeah. that have, and they know what they're doing, but do they know when something happens that they can do this? And that's what I don't know. And it just wears me out. Dude, <laughs> this, uh, so there's a guy that I've been getting to drive me to LAX. Like when I have to travel, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not parking and dealing with that shit. So I've got <laughs> this this dude that drives me. He probably won't drive me again because he's a bit of a fucking weirdo. But so anyway, we're, we're, we're in the car and he's done like five or six trips with me yeah. like since I got here. And then my wife came over. She gets in the car and she's like, this fucking dude's not all right. Like <laughs> this, I'm not comfortable. Like this yeah. isn't cool. And... Uh, so anyway, we, we got we got to LAX and we're just sort of having a coffee, laughing about it. And um, she's like, I wonder what he did before he did this, you know? And I was like, oh, funny story. He was actually a fucking commercial, a private yeah. airline pilot, worked for NetJets. And See, I'm that's what saying, I'm oh, saying. Yeah, and that's- I'm like... You cannot drive a shopping cart. <laughs> and he reckons he worked for NetJets for like 20 years. I'm like, bro. That story right there. That's why I'm scared of flying. Yeah, I've never here. thought about it until I met that guy. And I was like, dude, who is this guy? Like, yeah. he's full blown. Like, we were driving in the carpool lane. And he's just like, he's just twitching. <laughs> like, he's just twitching. And yeah. I'm, I'm thinking, like, is this dude about to have a seizure? Like, so can you imagine that guy being your bloody net jet pilot? Oh, so yeah. you, you're right. I yeah. Just, well, that's just the way I've kind of, I've always looked at it. But, um, but you know, in the end, we made it happen. I did it. Um, you know, was living in Europe, you know, for, for quite a bit. And, and uh, some great memories, for sure. Well, I was talking to Casey, actually, before you come on. Mm. And I was like, oh, what would you, what what's like something cool you think that, were like a good topic for Ben, you know, like on the inside. <laughs> Don't ask him. <laughs> <laughs> but he he made a really good point, and as he always does, he's a fucking genius in life in general. But um, yeah, he said, ask Ben what it takes to go all in, you know, and and why? Because I think like we've seen Nikki win a world a MotoGP title, mm-hmm. and then you've obviously had success, like a lot of success on a super high level, but there's not that many americans on that world stage Mm -hmm. that have made that kind of impact you know and i think that there's yeah when you play it off for australia though you've got jack miller casey stoner Mm -hmm. mick doing like keep going you know there's there's a list of guys and it's like in australia you kind of don't have the choice to go back and forward it's so far from Europe, it's not like America where mm-hmm. you can have a shit weekend and you're like, all right, I'm going home. Mm-hmm. You know, you were one of the guys, and this is what Casey said, like you were one of the guys that went fully all in. Like once you went to Europe, like you went to Europe, you were there. There was no one foot in, one foot out. I can yeah. go back home. Well, I mean, to to be frank, the main, the main reason for that was it was less flying. Mm. So I based myself, you know, I was in Lake Coma, which of all places, it was really awesome, Beautiful, you know, and, yeah. I, and I did a lot of cycling and rode with a lot of the, the pro cyclists that lived like right in that area. Um, so that was, that was good. And I had my, my two mechanics I brought from America with me and we, uh, we had a house together. I rented a house. And so I had a, that, that circle. And again, it was mainly being over there was, so I wasn't flying as much. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was, um, 
like I said, it was it was a completely. I didn't see that happening. You know, even when I started winning in Superbike, like I thought I was going to stay in AMA forever. Um, but when the choice came, we did it, and and I just kind of that was the reason for getting over there was just less flying and and um, you know more training time and more rest. And did you feel like you kind of had to make that all in approach to kind of make it work? Because I spoke to Chad on the podcast years ago. And it was sort of one of the things like it hit me like a ton of bricks when he said it because he said the exact same thing because mm-hmm. I kind of was like, man, it really seemed like you didn't really care about Australia that much like mm-hmm. when you left, you know, and I think Aussie fans like that Aussie fans really got that impression from him. Mm-hmm. And um, and he said that, dude, I had to like mm-hmm. I missed home every day, but you have to put it out of your mind. Oh, yeah. You have to completely cut it off. You can't be half in, half out. I miss my friends. I miss my family. I miss- oh, yeah. You just got to go all in. Like, can you resonate? Like, does that resonate with yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I was homesick too. Not enough where it, you know, it was bad or anything, but it was, you know, it was tough because I was, I was that type of person that was like, I had my bus and mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a homebody type person. And then all of a sudden you, you know, get immersed into Italy. And at that time we were doing pretty well and, and, you know, just walking on the streets in Italy or something like that, you know, you'd kind of pass somebody and as soon as they pass you going the other way, you hear, that was Ben Spies, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it was a different thing. It was awesome, you know, but in the same time, I wasn't, um, I'd rather people not notice me than notice me yeah. when I'm just doing normal stuff. You know, I don't, I don't like the, I, I respect it and obviously love the fans yeah, that I have, for it, but yeah. I'm not, I'm not the one that's trying to to build that fan base. I'm just trying to do the best I can on the track and the people that like it and support, you know, how I ride. That's awesome. You know, and I love the fans, but I just, I wasn't that person to put on the show, Mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, that's a, that's a fine line between like every sport is an entertainment Mm -hmm. product as well as it is a sport. And you know, you see the guys like the Valentinos and the, yeah, you know, like they. Well, I mean, Valentino, Nikki. You know, they were they were good at it. They liked it. I mean, it wasn't something that was fake. You know, mm. it wasn't something that like for me, if I was going to act like Nikki, it would have that fake. That's fake. Yeah, yeah. And Casey was kind of the same way. Not comparing me to Casey, but you know, he he didn't need you know the attention, and and I didn't either. And not saying that that's bad or good. It's just that's kind of the way it is. Yeah, and you know, I think too. It's, um, you know, cause my wife's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. Yeah. The one thing I got to always argue is kind of like, I understand, you know, your point of view and I'm glad that you're, you're like that and all that stuff. But you know, you've got to understand that it's not like we're wrong. Mm. We're just different, yeah. you know, and, and a lot of extroverts, it doesn't seem like they can understand why introverts are like that. You yeah. Know? So, but that's me, you know, my whole life. I mean, when I got, when I was in front of people, um, in a classroom or even accepting awards when I was at a pretty big level, you know, and I start talking in front of a big group of people, it's like voice is a little shaky. I'm like getting analyzed like here, you know, that's just, that yeah. was me. Yeah. It's funny. My wife, whether I'd say I'm probably more of an extrovert, mm-hmm. she's the exact opposite. And it's funny, the lack of awareness that I had, because mm-hmm. I've never really been in a relationship or like with an introverted person in that mm-hmm. sense and like my family is very extroverted and like yeah that, that was that was the world i knew yeah and you know the the level of social awareness i think i learned by <laughs> being with her like oh it is way different for a lot of people like she ba- she says like a social battery mm-hmm. so she goes 
we'll be at a place at a party at an event and she goes hey my battery's on zero i'm out mm-hmm. and i'm like sweet you know and yeah. i used to take like i'd be take offense to it in a sense yeah, like yeah. what you're not having fun am i not fun am i not yeah. cool yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. and it's just that's just not how it works yeah. and then you know she'd be like oh yeah i just get to the point where i'm i'm out I, yeah. i've got nothing left to give to any of these people i need to just go be be by myself and then i've started noticing it myself i'm like hmm I could do that. Yeah. Like I can get to that. I, I get to that point, but I just push through and, yeah. you know, so I think it's, it's actually kind of cool when you can have an understanding of mm-hmm. a different person's experience and then kind of, you can almost put it back to yourself. Like, mm, okay, I can, I could see that. Yeah. And it's, and even my daughters, you know, they, they kind of see it too because they're extroverts that would be, yeah, and yeah. one of them's kind of a little bit more introvert, but one's not totally yeah and it's like we go to a public park or something and there's say 50 people she's walking down the hill and she just yells out loud like who i'm lila who wants to play this is my dad right here and i'm like okay <laughs> you know and she's just like she looks back and she knows i'm i'm kind of not i don't like that type of stuff That's but she, she's old enough where she kind of pokes fun at me too and i'm yeah. like come on you're seven like stop that's so <laughs> but good it's funny it'd be a trip to see the way that your kids develop a personality and seeing things that are you seeing things that are your wife mm-hmm. oh we've got it's we got like i said i got two wild girls they've got italian blood in them so they're they're full on and they're totally different you know but they're they're similar obviously too so um no i'm excited you know just to watch that grow up it's it's been fun oh man i, I can't even imagine yep. you, you said before about uh you know you didn't ever have the vision of going and you know doing the europe thing and mm-hmm. and that's so american in yeah. a sense like 50 percent of americans don't own a passport mm-hmm. and i think it's like 14 percent of americans have never left the state they were born in and i mean don't get me wrong because all the stuff like all the tapes i watched when i was a kid you know was <clears throat> wayne rainey mcdewan yeah. swanson and um you know rainey and gardner all those guys so i mean that's all I ever watched and yeah. even the world superbike type stuff, um, with Bayless and Corsair back in the day, um, Fogarty and, and, uh, so I was well aware and that's, that's everything I ever watched. But in the same time, you know, we had it pretty easy in America, you know, mm-hmm. we had 10 rounds, um, everybody, when I was racing in AMA, they were getting paid pretty well. What, um, what was ballpark back then? For, for like a top dude in, in like an AMA? Like 2006 to 2008, if you were doing well and winning, you know, um, I, it was basically between, you know, 1.8 and 2.5 and mil, you Which know, base good, hour. Good cash. Yeah, yeah. And it's when you're doing that, and, and like I said, it's everything's just kind of like I had my motor home. I had all my training stuff in it. I had my dogs. Um, you know, me and my best friend, we traveled, you know, did kind of everything together. It was just easy, you know, and it, and it wasn't just it was easy, but that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah I wanted yeah. to have all the records in America. I wanted to, you know, stay in the series and do all that. But it was simply because of what the economy did to American racing and and all the stuff that happened after that. You how, know, so. how long did it take for it to bounce back? Or has it ever got back to that level? Not, not quite. It's like I said, it's, it's, it's coming back slowly, but it was, you know, the economy, there was a few things that happened all at once and it was Mm. the economy happened. I left, you know, at the end of 08 and then Matt, who I'd been racing obviously for those four years, he kind of, they changed the rules a little bit for the bikes in 09 and he, he wasn't having it. 
you know it was a it was a super stock bike what they of, go back like they went less factory more production yeah basically. it's like super bike like you've got a super sport bike which is a bike with bolt-on parts and then you've got a full-fledged super bike yeah they kind of went back to super stock rules and he didn't like that at all and then i had left and we didn't have that rivalry anymore so he retired at the end of 09 and then after that you know a couple of the factories the japanese factories pulled out and it all happened you Wait. know yeah so then you know, with what they've been given and what they have now, Moto America's doing an awesome job, but they still, you know, we don't have the the big Japanese brands as factory teams. You know, they're supporting some riders, and, and I think that they, you know, hopefully will get back into it. We need it, um, but it's still moving in the right direction. But that was – a few things happened all at once, and then it it changed a lot. And, um, you know, like I said, it's slowly coming back, but it's it's got a ways to go. It – it's quite a unique series though right because like they'll do daytona which mm-hmm. there's nothing like that in the world like i think one of the cool things about the moto america series is the way that it, it is quite different from mm-hmm. you know you, you can't compete with moto gp you can't compete with world superbike but you can mm-hmm. create a different enough product that strikes interest with mm-hmm. a global audience and if you've got the right personalities and if it's presented in the right way and i think these days man like if you nail the media and if mm-hmm. you nail the social media and if you build the personalities, mm-hmm. then I really think that you can make any sport great. Heron's a pretty good example, you know, of the social media man. stuff. I mean, he's, you know, he's done a really good job the last few years and, um, you know, it's, it just shows. I mean, you, you can do some stuff. You just got to work at it. And he works super hard at it too. You know, like yeah. he, he takes, he takes that, like very very seriously yeah and you know you see the results and like i mean the first thing you do these days when i mean it's first thing i do when i'm doing research on people i just type somebody's name into youtube yeah it's the second biggest search engine on planet earth like Mm -hmm. you better be there yeah yeah no it's it's you know I, i know that he's got an amount of fans that aren't per se racing fans that he's brought, you know, from the street, the street stuff. That yeah. He does. So there's, you know, he's, he's done a really good job with that. There's, there's no doubt. Have you seen some of his videos drifting those V2s and shit? See, Bro. I don't, I don't ride on the street. Like <laughs> I've a... never, I don't have a motorcycle license. No way. No. And I'm, I mean, I've actually, the most I've ever ridden on the street was just a HJC photo a video shoot we did um, like three weeks ago or, or when I saw you at that, that party. So it's uh i'm just not a big street rider never done it and then you see people like that and you know i've always told people this that you know like the good street riders if we go to like maholan canyon or something like that they'll dust you bro two corners i can't (laughs) see them but then it's like if we go to a track in five laps we can lap some of those people and you're just used to a different you know i'm used to that tunnel where there's nothing that can happen besides what your bike or what you're gonna do yeah um and it's just a different thing and then you know being at that level i just kind of if i go right on the street you're not able to push even 40 percent. you know so it's just not some guys are some gnarly like i and the bikes the bikes are fast i mean they're real fast i rode a ducati you know, V4 yeah. in that deal. And I, I kind of told that we shut the roads down once we had cops and I kind of went back to the cop and I said, Hey, I'm going to, this was a flyby kind of, they were just still on the road and I was getting right past them. And I was like, I'm going to let it go on this one. And I was <laughs> like, and I mean, I got up to like 170. I just, I couldn't believe how fast the bike was. I was like, this bike makes as much horsepower as my super bike did back you know, in, 10 years yeah, ago. It's yeah, crazy. Yeah. You know, 12 years ago. Yeah. I remember when I was, when I was, 
young. I, I left school. I had like a couple of like labor jobs and then I was trying to get a job working for the Honda dealership mm-hmm. in town. And I, um, I got this job and I was doing sales and I'd sell like Yamaha R1s and all like CBR thousands and shit. Mm-hmm. And I was only 18 or 19. So I had like a 250 license. So yeah. the, the shop had this little NSR oh, yeah. 250 yeah. two stroke deal. And um, I used to have to, like, if I'm selling, trying to sell a bike to someone, then mm-hmm. you'd go on the test ride with them. So I'm on this little NSR two-stroke. Yeah. And the amount of people, like, that's where I learned real quick where I was like, those bikes are not okay. Like, I couldn't ride one because, it, like, legally I couldn't ride one yet. Yeah. And so I'm saying, like, hey, how much riding experience have you got? And you just get Joe Blows off the street no, it's- that just did their learner course. They are following someone in a yellow. And then let's buy a 200 horsepower bike. Dude, and like the amount of guys, I saw, I think I saw three dudes in the time. There was, we were on this main Anderson Road in in Mm. my town, Main Street. And then there was a a roundabout. You'd go left out of this, (laughs) you'd go left out of the shop. And I'm there, bah, 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 I'm the little mm-hmm. two-stroke, and old mate would just gun it on the roundabout, just go, <laughs> three dudes crashed on the roundabout, probably 400 yards from the shop, man. And That's... like, I remember putting the, you'd have to, like all the bikes would be out the front, mm-hmm. and then you'd ride them around the block to put it back in. And like, I remember getting on an R1 one day, and I was in first gear doing 140 kilometers an hour. And I'm just like, what the fuck is wrong? This thing has five more gears. No, it's like I said, it's it's one of those things that, you know, like if I was going to get a street bike or I'm riding, I'm getting, you know, something like a Scrambler or, yeah. a, or a Hyper Motard bike that you can actually like have twist you, it. Have you rode a Ducati Hyper Motard? No, yeah, no, Bro, it's super fun. They are so much fun. Yeah, I rode a Scrambler a lot in in the shoot, and that was a fun bike, you yeah. know, because it had the dual sport knobbies on it, you know, and I was riding on gravel, so I was kind of sliding it around, and yeah. But it's a bike that you can actually ride, hold it wide open, yeah. for more than a second, and you're not going 190 miles an hour. Yeah. So that's the kind of bikes that I would ride if I was actually going to own a street bike and ride, or like a multi strata something. Have you, you know, rode one of them? Yeah, yeah, <sighs> wicked, dude. Yeah. That's one of the coolest bikes I think I've ever rode in my life. Yeah, no, it's 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 cool. And what you can do on that bike is, if you're a good rider, I mean, you can kind of go most places. Tight, oh. tight single track, it'll get a little bit tough, but you know, normal single track or like the just Jeep. fire road sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, I, I was actually a Ducati ambassador in Australia for the last few years. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I had a I had a Hyper Motard first, and then I had a um. I had a, the Monster, the 1290, I think it is. Yep. And then I had a Multistrata in and out. And I remember the guy, I thought the Multistrata was fucking lame. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're like, hey. This and then new, you ride it. Yeah, this yeah. new adventure bike's coming in and like go to the dealership. They've got one there. And mm-hmm. so my dad, he's got Africa twins. So he's like oh, a yeah. big adventure bike guy. And uh, so then I, my mate drops me off at this, at the Ducati dealership and old mates oh this thing's so sick and i'm standing there just being like bro this is the lamest bike yeah, yeah. i've ever seen in my life and then he's like he's like just do me a favor bro just ride it just gun it yeah. onto the freeway when you leave he's like you'll be doing 170 k's by the mm-hmm. time you get merged onto the freeway yeah and i could not believe it oh, yeah. like, i just sent the thing and but like adaptive cruise control like just so much in the position of it too i mean oh, it's beautiful. just you're comfortable yeah. you know so now those are cool bikes i'm actually now that you know with, with the, the ducati, ducati team yeah. i'm gonna try to get one of those so i can ride it out to the ranch from the house well and then well it'd be perfect for there mm-hmm. and then the the hyper motard that was the first 
bike that I had. I actually did a sick day. My first ever track day was with Troy Bayless and Ollie Bayless. And mm. it was just us. Had We had like a little track rented out. And first time I'd ever put leathers on and, you know, tried mm. to get a knee down and all that shit. Yep. And uh, it, was, it was on that bike. And I loved that thing. That's so, cool. Man, yeah. Bayless was... He was one of the only ones I didn't get to race. That's really? that's the one guy, you know, that because I looked up to him and, and watched sure. all his racing. And I was at a good level, you know, when I went into the 09 season. And he, remember, he, so I showed up to do the, the last 2008 round because I was going to do the first test, like, yeah. two days after, yeah, you know, yeah, Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday. So you did, like, a wild card type deal. Well, no, I, I was just watching the race, and um, that was his last weekend. He oh. won, and then he was retiring, and then I was starting to test the two, three days later. So, and then the '09 season, obviously, we won the we won the title, and I know he's sitting at home, you know, because like, he waxes full, or, or or it's at least <laughs> well, like you I'm know, glad I'm not there. Yeah, no, he, he he's the type where he would have wanted to race, yeah. you know, with with I'm sure what he saw was happening. He was like, you know, damn. And I was the same way. I was like, and I've, I've messaged him and, and told him that I was just, I was bummed that he retired because I wanted to race him, you know. And I got to race a lot of the people I looked up to, and he's, you know, he's Troy Bayless. And yeah. we would have had some scraps. You know, oh, it would have been fun. And he's, uh, I mean, I, I think there's just that, that old school generation. Like, yeah. there's, there's such a... When I grew up, like I said, I was the last, you know, few years before I was going there, I was racing against Matt. And yeah. it was like... That's gnarly. Yeah. You know, people, people that know, know. And he was fast, but it was also all the, all this, the old school rivalry. Just like comp competitive oh, too. <laughs> so like Troy and his son, Ollie. Yeah. Dude, Troy's in his fifties. No, he's gnarly. O Ollie's a teenager mm -hmm. and they're just going for it on road bikes, flat track. Yeah. Like Troy's at the uh, Avales. They got the little 400s. Mm -hmm. Just every single day yeah. they're competing. And oh, it's yeah. like, so you be around that for 25 minutes and you're like, oh, that's why you're Troy Bayless. Like, yeah. You are just a complete psychopath. Well, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've heard so many stories too. you know, Ben Bostrom that like them cycling together and just doing stuff and just all the different stories. And I mean, he is full tilt, you yeah. know, in, in every way, but I, I like it. And like I said, his, his riding style, the way he did everything, but that's how he is off the track. That's how, that's what he is. And I mean, he's the dude again. Whatever age he is, if he jumps on a, a flat track bike, he ain't going slow. Oh no, you know, it's Same like as... it's like Kenny Roberts Senior when he jumped on that TZ at um, you know the mile. It was like, wow, are you serious, dude? Like you're not young anymore. <laughs> like yeah. wow, you don't bounce. No. But Mick, Mick Doohan's the same way, man. Mm -hmm. Like, he is just a savage motherfucker. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. I mean, when you're, when you're, you know, at that level, at that high level, I mean, we were kind of talking about it earlier. You're, there's a talent involved, yes. But, I mean, you're doing things differently. And mm -hmm. it's just from the research you're doing, the, the time you're putting in, the training, your mindset, you know, whatever it is, it's just – it's got to be a little bit different, you know, if you're able to, you know, keep that high level and, and do that stuff. And I just, I've always said that the greats kind of in every sport, they're doing stuff different, mm. you know, for sure. What what was the, what was the first thing in your life you applied that to? Like, was it just bikes? It was always bikes. Like that's yeah. where you found it. Or is it the kind of thing, you know, the saying like how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm -hmm. So is it just that's the like you're just that guy. You just came Yeah, it was out. it was just racing. Like I my um you know, my mom and dad they took me to a supercross when I was like three years old. Yeah. And I saw the little intermission fifty race 
and I threw the biggest temper tantrum. Because I mean, you were there. Yeah, I was like, what's going on? And we had to leave the Supercross because I was just crying so much and wanted to be out there. So that was three. And then, um, you know, I started riding when I was five. And then um, my mom's ex-boyfriend, that's who kind of got me into it. And he brought home some YSR50s. And I was like seven. And I'm like, those things fit me better than they do you. And he was riding in parking lots, kind of doing his training. So I started doing it. I was wearing motocross gear with rollerblade knee pads. That's so yeah, sick. Yeah, no, that's awesome. <laughs> and I was like starting to drag my knee with that. And then I started racing. And, you know, at that age, I was doing well. But, you you know, you never know how you're going to be when you're 8, 9, 10 kind of thing. You know, There's a lot of life that happens yeah, in between. Yeah, I mean, you're doing well. And you're doing what it looks like should be going to that level. But a lot of stuff has to take place. And, you know, I remember I was... I was probably 14 and just to give you an example of how I thought about racing, I was, I just broke my foot in like four or five places and, um, went to school, was on crutches and somebody had asked me, I was in math class or something. Somebody asked me what had happened and I basically just answered him and the teacher, I don't know what I'd done to make him mad or before stuff, whatever, but I just remember he stood up and he was like, you know, if motorcycle racing is more important than my math class, you can get the fuck out. And I, was I would like, be like, see ya. No, I said, all right. I said, peace <laughs> yeah. out, dude. And I, I got my crutches, I got my bag, and I walked out. And I, you know, I'd go home from school. And my mom was the type that when she picked me up, she was like, what do you get, you know, kicked out for? And they said it. And she was like, okay, well, you want to go out to the shop to see your bikes? Or like in front of them. Like yeah, she, yeah. So they know that she supports it. And then funny story, you know, when I was 18 or 19, I had bought a, signed my first factory deal, uh, bought an M3, an E46 M3 yep, 2003. Yep. I was stoked. You know, everything's good, getting paid decent money at that age. And there was a breast cancer um, charity thing going on at, in an elementary school down the road. So we had a, I had a friend that the wife taught up there. So I went up there and I donated like 7500 7, bucks or something to it. And uh, when I pulled up, you know, I parked and the principal came out principal was my old math teacher (laughs) and it was it was such a good like and he was laughing I mean he was just like but you know this doesn't happen like all I was like I know but I was like what's up how you doing he's like oh I've been following you and watching you it was cool I mean it was like a full circle thing but back then it was one of those things where yeah if if you think it's more important I was like well I know it's more important yeah you know so I'm out so that was pretty fun that's so cool yeah I think some people just like I mean, I always, I always gravitated to writing. Just it was just the I, I know more now mm. why, but it's like that's that was just my escape from everything. Yeah. and I I feel even now, you know, like especially we're doing the world vets thing. I've rode more now than I have in my life. Yeah, and I'm just like, no matter what's going on mm-hmm. in life, the pressures, any of the stuff that you know, any bills, any blah 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 blah, like just pick your poison gone and just to be able to hyper focus on something like that's the thing that i loved the most Mm -hmm. was just the ability to just hyper focus in on something and it's like i just if you don't if you like the math your math teacher might not have had anything in his life Mm -hmm. that gave him that feeling you know yeah no i mean that's what exactly and that's what i've always joked about you know with i say like oh i had asperger's about motorcycles because it's just that's what it was and it um yeah i mean the amount of the amount of riding i did when i was a kid and you know always 
you know, time and stuff. And everybody, I got the nickname when I was a kid, LT, because I was always like, hey, what's your laptop? laptop yeah, so yeah. I was like, if you know, that's that's what it's about. Then you got to put everything else together and, and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I rode so much as a kid, um, doing a lot of flat track training. I didn't race it, but I had a lot of, you know, I had like six XR100s with the street tire on the back and the knobby front tt courses and a big flat track and, and all that kind of stuff so that's i mean the amount of time i rode it was just it was unreal did you, you know? think about it as a kid like why well, you rode or why you liked it so much no i didn't think about it like that what i would always do is is like you know if i was going out and i was even by myself or something i would do like a 15 lap little race and like I would go in imagination mode where I'm thinking that There's okay, it's like I've got a second gap and you know, all that kind of stuff. And now that I have my little girl, one of them, she's super, you know, imaginative in that way. And obviously she gets that for me. Cause when I was a kid, that's kind of how I would run it in my head. I'm like, okay, well he's behind you by one second or he's one second ahead and just kind of would do these like imaginary races, but it just, it kept me focused and it was what I love to do. Yeah. Kids are so much gnarlier than you give them credit for, eh? Yeah, now, like I said, now that I've got a couple, you you realize, you know, a lot more stuff. Yeah, know? yeah, because I, I mean, like, I don't know if it's the same for you, but I don't feel any different than when I was 10. Like, no, in my I mean, back, I'm, I'm pretty immature still, you know, in a lot of ways. <laughs> but even just in the, like, the the voice in your head, like, because you're obviously, like, we're just conversating with ourselves all the time, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. that imagination of, like, oh, this guy's a second ahead. Of a sec-. Like, that's you talking to yourself, essentially. Yeah. And it's, like, the the conversations that I was having with myself as a 10-year-old are the same that I'm having now. Like, yeah. I'm not exact... I'm, I guess I'm smarter in some ways. Yeah, yeah, but, but in terms it's of, like, still the same. it's me. Like, I'm still that mm-hmm. guy. And I just... When you look at a kid that's mm-hmm. any 10-year-old, you just don't think that there's that complex of a world going on inside of a kid's head and then it's like i always find it so impressive with guys like you hmm. any athlete that was dedicated from such a young age that there was a really high level internal dialogue going on in that person's brain yeah. to push them to the place that they got to now yeah i mean when i was when i was i would say it really started hardcore when I was probably 12, just being analytical about everything, you know, and, and, um, just trying to look for any speed I could and just all the differences. And, you know, it's, um, you get locked in, you know, and, and you're like that. And then talking about kids, you know, it's the same thing. Like when my daughter, she starts reading some of her books that she reads, I can look over at her and it's like, you're in it. Yeah. yeah like yeah. You're, you in, you're in Narnia right now. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, Hey Lila. And she's just like, Oh, yeah. you know, and you get, you know, so into it. And that's what motorcycle was, you know, for me when I was a kid, I mean, it was just as soon as I'm out of school, you know, school was, I hated school Yeah, and was it was just an introvert type person. You know, I just didn't like it, you know, and, and I wanted to be on my motorcycle. I felt like it was always in the way. Yeah. Um, and that was, uh, that was it. You know, my dad, he wanted me to always kind of have that backup plan. And I told this to him, you know, a few times, but this was my mentality back then. Now that I'm older, it's like, wow, you know, I can't believe you thought like that, but I did, is that, you know, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to finish high school and do that stuff. But it was like, dad, if I'm, we know now I'm at a level that I can get paid to do it. Yeah. I might not be a champion. You don't know at that point, but when you're 12, 13, it's kind of like, all right, well, if you stick with this trajectory and you don't get hurt, yeah, you're going to be there. You know? So I just told him, I was like, man, the only reason I'm going to need to know all this other stuff 
is if I get paralyzed, but then I'm not able to work anyway. Yeah. That's the way I looked at it. Damn, that's no. That's exactly. I told my mom and my dad that many times. I was like, if I can't race to make money, it's because I'm hurt. And if I'm hurt like that, I can't, I can't go work to work anyway. anyway. So wow. that's how, it, and that started from when I was like 12, 13, 14. And, you know, I had a, had a best friend that was my teammate. He passed away. And that was a lot of the, a lot of my old friends and amateur organization, they know about it. And that was the reason for the number 19, but you're around that stuff, you know, from a young age. So you see it, yeah. and it, um, you know, kind of changes some stuff, but it, it keeps you focused too. How did you deal with, like, was was fear a part of, you know, like, I, I think what you guys do is just so gnarly, like the speed. I mean, I've ridden Phillip Island, like, Jesus Christ. And then I've been on the back of a bike with Jack Miller, sending the fuck out of it. And it's just like, bro, like, it's not, it's not okay. <laughs> like, how fast and how dangerous and how not. And that's just one guy around one track, let alone... 400 k's an hour of heavy braking trying to make a pass on tires that are going all, like there is just it is so gnarly to to be in that space and i always think just like how like how do you mentally commit to that now, and not have that fear now that i've been out of it for a while and not at that speed every weekend or every other weekend it's different you know i mean i i got on the track um you know a few years ago at laguna seca and I was just on a stock R1, but it, you know, we were just doing a track just on day. A stock R1. <laughs> yeah, but, which is, you know, nothing it's basic compa- compared yeah, to yeah, the super yeah. bikes. And, you know, we're riding at Laguna and I had a really good pass on Maladin in 07 that won the championship and it was going up into the corkscrew and it was a, it was a big pass. It was big. And then I'm going in the corkscrew on the R1, you know, 11 years later and I'm riding at the pace I'm doing and I'm like, fuck, I used, I would, I used to go to here and to be, I was still sideways at this point and then I'm dragging my elbow, you know, in the apex and I'm thinking what I'm doing now and I'm not going slow, nah. but it's like when you're doing it every day, I mean, I kind of, I've always said it's, it's like a fighter pilot or something that that's your office. That's what you're doing every day. Um, you know, you're going through corners, 150, the bike's kind of drifting and, you're you're manipulating the bike through the corners where it's kind of pushing to you know opening up the rear kind of deal and it's normal it's just you're not thinking about it but it's not normal you know for the brain (laughs) and that's what you realize when you retire um and you go back and do it or you just think about you know the stuff you were doing back then and it's when you're doing it every day and you've got that talent it seems like it's nothing i mean it's just you're not even thinking about anything but in the same time, it's not normal. It's not normal for your brain for a lot of its life to be going over a hundred sliding on that edge of crashing or whatever it is, you know? So think about like the, I was talking to this with Brandon Semenuk, actually like the calculations that the brain can make. It is pretty psychotic mm-hmm. when you think about the level at which our brain does physics. Yeah. And no, then, but just as like a normal person, mm-hmm. if you were like to throw me a times table right now, like full retard, like I couldn't, yeah. you know what I mean? I couldn't, my brain could not tell you, mm-hmm. but you can go to a track and I'm not the best rider, but it's mm-hmm. like, I can come in all these bumps, then I can lean, I can pick up the throttle. I can't like, I can hit something like that. And it's mm-hmm. just, that's calculations. Like that's your brain 
doing physics Mm -hmm. in real time and you don't even have to think about it and then it's like the level that you guys did stuff Mm -hmm. you know like a you can pick the iconic like a casey turn three where you're just like (laughs) like what is like how dude well it's it's funny because i was just doing a i was driving my car you know a couple weeks ago at at road atlanta track that we used to race at the porsche stuff Yeah, 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 yeah 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 and um and I'm talking with this this guy that I met there, and he was super cool and just kind of talking. He's like, you know, where are you breaking at, you know, going into 10A? That was the corner off the back straightaway. You're doing 160 in the car. Um, used to be like 185 on a bike. And I was like, I don't – I was like, I don't really – I don't know. I don't know. I'm just kind of judging it off my RPM and speed and, and all that stuff, and that goes even to the bikes. Like, you know, there's a there was a couple tracks for sure in, in the big braking zones – where you kind of have your, you know, the 200 meter board or whatever. But I would say, you know, majority of the time I didn't have a brake marker. It was just, you know, depth perception, just everything, Mm -hmm. you know, RPM of the bike speed, all that kind of stuff. You just get in that, that rhythm and you don't, you know, you're not having to think about certain stuff. And that's just, you know, again, brake markers are an important thing and especially kind of amateur riders and stuff like that. But there's a lot of times I think pro racers, you know, unless like I said, you're in a big break zone from 200 down to 40, you know, it's, you're just kind of winging it a little bit, or, you know, you got a better drive off the corner before. So you got to back up, you know, 10 or 15 feet, or you got to shit drive out of the corner. So you can run it in a little bit deeper. You're just doing all those calculations and you're not thinking about it. Yeah. And, and it's, I wonder if there's some, people that just genetically like your eyesight's a little bit better Mm. you know there's like there's these tiny muscles in your eye that stabilize your eye Mm. so like when we take footsteps it's not like our fucking yeah yeah you know our Mm -hmm. our world starts shaking and Mm. that's like to do with muscles in your eyes and it's like i wonder if there is you know it's not like talent as Mm -hmm. such but i wonder if talent is You've got all of these different boxes, mm-hmm. like a, on Street Fighter, you know? You've got all these yeah, yeah. bars that, that, you know, you could be 100 in eyes. Yeah. Or, and then a guy that might be 50. Yeah. But it's like in day-to-day life, that percentage doesn't mean shit. Yeah. Like you could never actually tell. But mm-hmm. it's not until you get to 180 miles an hour, which mm-hmm. we have zero use for in real yeah. life, yeah. that some people just genetically have like a bit of a step above you know well i mean there's there's a lot of a lot of those type of people and i mean i don't i'll definitely you you know like someone like casey and marquez they're they're on a they're just on another level of most people um you know i wasn't you know at a bad level but i know i put in a lot of work outside the track when it came to just watching tape studying racecraft, knowing how to be with tires, doing a lot of testing with old tires uh, for race distance, doing a lot of testing where we would save new tires and we would bang them on. And so if I got the whole shot, I could be rolling, you know, from, from turn one. So there were so many different types of development, you know, when I was coming up from like 16 to 19 type thing that it made a difference. And I didn't see a lot of other people treating it like that. Mm. But so I just know at the end of the day, there were, there were a few more talented riders than me, but I just, I think I put in a lot more work. And then, you know, the physical fitness side, I mean, I know I didn't leave anything out there when I was, you know, in my prime of racing. And I just, I'd heard all my life, you know, when people would retire, well, if 
If I, if I would have done this yeah. and I would have done that, and it's like, man, you're racing in the grand scheme of things for this long, you know, in your life. And it's like, I can be dedicated and just try to control everything that I can control, which is a lot. There's mm. a lot of stuff you can't control, but there's a lot of stuff you can, you mm. know, from when your plane arrives to how you're going to rest and just what everything. You eat, when everything. you sleep. Yeah. And, and it can... A lot of people can go extreme, you know, too extreme. But in the in the same time, you know, I feel like how I did it um, and what I did, it was it made the difference, you know. And in the AMA Superbike days, um, I know that me and Matt were the only people doing this, and it was because we had used the same physiologist mm-hmm. trainer. So before the races, after the race, you get in the the post um, ice bath, and it just gets you back down to temperature where you start recovering and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of people didn't know that. I had a uh, I had a second water tank in my motorhome that I had installed, and then you know you had two slides in the bedroom type thing. So I put my plunge pool back in my bedroom, so nobody would see it, even when they came in the front of my bus and we were having meetings mm-hmm. or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So what I was doing is you know 45 minutes before the race I would get in that plunge pool, but it would be a lot warmer. It'd be more like a pool temperature. And then you just drop the, you know, the degree by like half a degree every minute or two until you get to the point where you've been in there for 25, 30 minutes and you're almost about to shiver, which is your body warming up. So then you get out, you know, I would hear like the 15 minute horn. I would jump out. I'd do like some quick stretching and uh, get in my leathers. And when you go outside, you know, when you're, it's just like being in a cold pool for a yeah, long time, you yeah. get out, you're cold yeah, for cold. a long time yeah, or yeah, you're yeah, hot, whichever yeah. way it goes. Yeah. So like we go out there on a 95 degree, hundred degree day, the first 30 minutes, it feels like it's 70 to me outside. Mm. Like if you touch my skin, it's cold. Yeah. So then, you know, in the race you're spending, you're coming up, you're, you're spending 40% less of the race in the red zone that your red blood cells are getting destroyed and it's going to be more recovery, et cetera, et cetera. So you're getting the performance, you know, for the race, but then when you're doing double headers and you're racing the next day mm. or you're racing the or next you're week racing, or you're racing like world Superbike where there's two races in a day. And it just, and if you're doing that from the first race through the season, how, how many percents are you saving or not destroying your body to fully recover for that next week and that week after and all that stuff. And that's the things that I've always looked at. It adds up mm. those little half percents. You know, the leathers being perfectly tight for the straightaway, you know, being tucked in, doing all that stuff. And nobody, you know, till probably now, a few people know, but, you know, not many people know that I was like that secret about it. I would, I would fill that tank up. You would never see me hook up to a water hose. I would drain it kind of at the end of the day, like under my motorhome type thing, like on Sunday. So nobody, none of the racers knew about it, you know, and it was, uh, it was a contraption, but a thing that really helped. I mean, it was a huge benefit. And not only physically, but mentally. Oh, yeah, because I know that... Because you feel like you have an edge over everybody yeah. every single time you're on the grid, no mm-hmm. matter the pace, tires, bike, whatever. Well, I know. I mean, it's like I know that my body's in a better place. I know that it's cooler for the next day and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a big difference. Yeah. So what do you think a guy like... You said Marquez and Casey are on just like another level. Yeah. I mean, what is it in those guys, do you think? Like, have you spent much time thinking about that or does it just fuck with your head too yeah, much? Yeah, I mean, they're just, you know, it's like, they're, it's just, you got to ride it off to, there's, there, people are just, there's levels, there's you know. physiology. And, and it's, you know, like Valentino, um, Jorge, Danny, 
um, all those guys, great riders. And there were days that, you know, I could run with them or beat them. There were days that they beat me. The days when they beat me, you know, the GP bikes, if you just didn't have the right feel, you know, it's like two tenths a lap, two tenths a lap. You can see it. You're just not a, you don't have that feeling to be able to roll with them, but it's not blowing your mind. It's like, man, well, if I just was a little bit more comfortable or the setting was like, I, I can see it. It's not, it's not yeah. crazy. It's just not right there with, you know, Casey or Marquez, you can literally follow them and through a, a two turn series, you know, deal. And it's like, shit, you know, I can do that two out of 10 times. He's doing it nine out of 10 times, you know, and it's just, that's, those are the only two people where it's like, okay, like they're, they're just better, you know? So that's why it was always nice too. When I won my MotoGP race at Casey was second, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cause we were, we were good buddies and stuff yeah. like that. And that was the one day that, you know, and there were a couple days, but that was just the one where it lined up in a race that, you know, we got out, I was a couple seconds ahead of him and, uh, I'd been fast the whole weekend and felt really comfortable on that track. And it was like, I set in the pace and I'd, you know, like three and a half seconds on him or something. And then I came back and, you know, he's, it's 3.4. And then the next lap, it's like 3.2. And I was like, okay. And then I'll, I'll see that and I'll raise it, you know, a 10th. And then I put him back to 3.5 and then we kind of stayed at that a little bit. Then he took, he made another little effort and kind of got it to like 3.2. And I answered again. And like the second time I could see he gave, didn't give up, but he was like, okay, I'm not that I need. Yeah. It. He's, yeah. he's got a response for, for this and I'm just too far back. So you know, it was nice for, for the, the one and only MotoGP race to, you know, him be second. And I had his number, you know, that day because he had my number, you know, 90% of the time. <laughs> it, it just is phenomenal that that's a thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we all got two arms, two legs and a heartbeat is what my dad used to say. Yeah. But it's like, we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's just no, it's, some people have some freak shit going on. And everybody, everybody knows it. Like I talk with some of the riders that I know they can see you know, everything, they just might not have raced against them. And we'll, we'll have those conversations and they're just like, you know, those two dudes are just on another level, you know, they are. And that's and not saying that the guys aren't great that they're racing. It's just that, that next step. And it's just the percentages, like the average dude mm. is so much better than everybody else on planet earth <laughs> yeah like max verstappen right now oh it's like how good is fernando alonso how good is lando norris like yep. they have a Matt lewis hamilton yeah incredible well i mean it's like do you, what what happens do you think you know when he gets in fernando's car i mean or lewis's car he might it might not be as good as the red bull car right now but you don't think he's gonna be faster than them but when you're winning by a race by 24 seconds and you have a teammate that's not slow no you know i mean i know sergio's not the big race winner but he showed in other cars where he's at and that car too at times yeah yeah and but it's like max is just on another level yeah. you know i mean you can you can see it that's the way he's focused that's the way he's built he's a machine you know? I just wish there was a way to decode what was actually going on. Like, what is it? You know, because like I'd say to people all the time, like, and I think it's the beauty of motorsports mm -hmm. is that me and you can go to a track day mm -hmm. and we have the same feeling. Yeah. Fuck, I need to hit the brakes. I'm mm -hmm. going too fast. Yeah. Or I can't feel the front. Oh, 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 oh. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what, that's what you're adjusting to the whole time is that, mm -hmm. oh, oh, oh. Like, you're, you're just... You're trying to ride the edge. You're trying yeah. to ride the limit. That feels the same for me mm -hmm. as you. 
I'm just 40, 50, 60 mile an hour <laughs> slower, you know? But it's like, uh, those guys are having the same feeling, but it's just that bit down the road or it's yeah. just a bit deeper into the turn. And it's it's a lot of, you know, just having, I kind of always just called it the killer instinct. You know, I mean, if you're if you're wanting to win that much and you are winning that much, you're you're also thinking that when you're on the track, like, ain't nobody, they, they ain't got it. You know, mm. like... I guess my kind of mindset too is let's take Mark Marquez for example when he when he follows people and qualifies yeah, when, when yeah, he's yeah, you know because yeah. again he's the ultimate competitor winner and he's on a bike that's the worst bike so he's like I've, I've got to do it I'm gonna do whatever it takes to win and you know it's just one of those things that when you're in that zone you're kind of willing to do whatever it takes just to win you know and I even. I told my bicycle team, we have a bicycle team back home, and I told the guys a long time ago, I was like, you know, you can put in the training, you can do all this stuff, but you also have to have that mindset that you're going to win. You know, and it's like, let's pretend I was at the end of a race with a Lance Armstrong and somebody else that's at that level. If for whatever reason I'm with them and there's only three kilometers to go, I've quit thinking that it's Lance Armstrong. You know, it's mm. like all I'm thinking about is what do I got to do to win? That's all that matters. And, you know, there's just there's certain people that think a little bit more like that. And I'm not saying just taking stupid risk or anything, but you've got to have that that killer, you know, in you if you're going to be a winner for a long time. I mean, that's just those are the things that they're, they're doing a few things different, but their mindset also most likely is a little bit different, too. Yeah, and, and Marquez is such a crazy example. Like right now, probably on the worst bike, and for sure, just prepared to die. Yeah, you know, like and that we talked about a little bit at breakfast, but mm-hmm. the Mandalika crash Huge. was me. Just I was I felt terrible for him. Yeah, for a start because you could see that was a bike thing. Yeah, and I'm just like this fucking guy is willing to die to get this bike back up front and to and to win and it's just like you have to respect that and oh yeah and you know this year like he obviously there's been some pretty massive struggles as well you know like um when he took out uh blanking on the name at the start of the year on the um on the aprilia why am i blanking on the name not the factory aprilia espargaro no no no. who's vinales no the second team what was uh who would it be? Oliveira? Yeah, yeah, it was Oliveira. He mm-hmm. he took out Oliveira, and mm-hmm. it's like he got hammered. Yeah, by the like hammered, and it's like I get it, but also like just respect that the guys out there just absolutely giving it everything he can. Like, but you had that, that that you know you had the yellow fan base and the Marquez fan base. And yeah, it was true. just too easy for them, obviously, to go against Marquez. Um, but no, that's what I've been saying about him for the last kind of four years is if you look at what he's been through and, you know, he's been loyal to Honda and all that kind of stuff, the people that know, know, you know, most of his crashes in the past four years, they're, yeah, I mean, they're his fault because he's going over the edge, yeah, but it's exactly. because the bike is not there yeah. and they're like, oh, Mark, he's going to crash or he's all that's, he forgot how to ride. It's like, where is anybody else on a Honda that's in his zip code? Nobody. Yeah, like nobody. So, and that's because they're not prepared, like you said, yeah. to go to that extent. And like he got a podium on the weekend. Oh yeah, no, and that's why I'm I'm happy for him. You know, he's not a friend of mine or anything. I respect him, but I'm happy that 
he's getting on a bike that can win because in my eyes with what he's been through and what he's done, what he's already achieved, but then what he's had to go through, it's, um, you know, he's, he's paid his dues and it's like, you know, you've got a few years left and it'd be nice to see, you know, on a bike that you can have confidence on and, you know, go back for the win. So I'm glad he, you know, made the move and he stuck with Honda long time. And it's been, you know, the people that understand how, the development works with the Japanese to the Europeans and all the stuff, they've kind of known that he's, he's been stuck and he's probably most likely going to be stuck for a couple more years until they really think outside the box and, and change the bike. But, um, you know, he's just, he had a few years left and I think he made the, the smartest move. And some people are like, Oh, he's, you know, he's getting paid 10 or $12 million from Honda and this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking if I'm putting myself in his shoes and I'm worth the money that he's worth, $10 million to be back on a bike that can win, you're going to make more than that, you know, going forward, or at least the same. So it's, it's for him, it's not a money thing. I mean, he's got plenty of money. He just wants to be on a good bike again. And he knows that the way the development is with the Japanese, there's, there's no way that they'll have a bike, you know, next year that's competing with that Ducati. It's not going to happen. Oh, and just like afraid to die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just, being on that bike and you've seen the crashes that he's that he's had mm-hmm. by just trying like never say die yeah you know there, there might not be i mean it's like mcdoon level shit you know just the ready to and absolutely like pay the price to win the race and he and again he's shown that from the crashes he's shown it from when he wins but then he's also shown it where you know hey i don't have the pace but I'm still will, so I'm going to follow you in qualifying and try to get a toe to be that much closer. And that mentality, and I'll, I'll put Jack Miller into this, is where you know he followed Jack one time, and Jack just kind of made some jokes and they had fun, and and it didn't really mess with Jack too much. Other riders, it does, you know, and they get really pissed off about it and all this kind of stuff. And you know, the mentality that they should be having at that level, I think, or at least how I would have been if I was riding in my prime, is that. If I look back and I see Mark's on me or anybody's on me to follow me and I feel good and I feel like I'm one with the bike and having no troubles, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go do my qualifying lap with you behind me. And when we hit the checkered flag and we're done, I'm going to sit up and look back and I'm going to see that you either lost the front chasing me or I put half a second on you. That's what it is, you know, and that's what you have to be thinking if you want to take people down like that or you want to be you know, the ultimate kind of winner. And it's just some people have it, some people don't. But that's when it kind of gets to the nuts and bolts of like, you know, fuck it, I'm going to get it done. Like, I'm going to make it happen. Well, and you can just see the dudes, at least from, I mean, I've been around a lot of champions. Mm -hmm. And the guys that I know that become the best. Yeah. Everything's a competition. Yeah, no, I mean. Every every look (laughs) At a press conference, every word that gets said, every posture that you take when you're walking through pit lane, the way that your hair is, the shoes, the like, everything yeah. says winning. Yeah. And it's not always easy for people to be around, you know, oh, no there's no way, doubt, man. you know, no. and that's why I've, there's a couple of my real close friends where it's like, I, I know how it used to be. And like we go, we go ride motocross like a few years ago. And at this point, you know, I'm not training that hard and I'm just going out and riding. I'm a normal person. Yeah. yeah and, you're uh, back human again. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, we're riding and you know, I just, there was one, like I had this thought and we were just sitting there, you know, having Gatorades and sitting down. I was like, Hey guys, you know, I'm sorry, 
about like 10 years ago when I was kind of like, come on, let's ride. Like, come on, you yeah. know, let's go. Cause you're not getting tired. And then now it's like, okay, like I'm not training. I'm not in that life all the time. I realize like, okay, let's just kind of, let's have fun and, and be normal. And you realize how you used to be about it. Um, and how hard the sport is, you know, if you're not fully trained for it and doing all the stuff. Well, and, and like the level of selfishness that you have to have to be an athlete. Yeah. You know? I mean, you do. It's like I said, some people can deal with it better and, and it, you know, some people it doesn't get translated, you know, to the other people in a, in a way, but no, you have to, I mean, if you're, if, if you're winning and you're wanting to win and that's what the goal is, I mean, it, you try not to be selfish about it, but you've got to put yourself first and yeah. you've got to ask for everything when it comes to like, you know, resting. I wasn't a big media person, you know, I always loved the media people in our team, but they, you know, every time, sometimes they come try to get a quote and I'm like, no, nah, I'm not even talking right now, yeah. you know, and I know it wasn't easy, but that's also what made me, me riding and I could stay focused like that. Sorry, mate. Um, yeah, that, that mentality and that mindset also, I think, makes sense when you're in a position where your career is extremely finite yeah like you kind of you know like all right i've got x amount of years to try and make enough money to where mm-hmm. i can retire provide for my family like i think there's a lot of um there's a lot of pressure in that situation as well that is kind of strange and like i've probably started feeling that a bit more in my life over the last few years as like things get bigger yeah you've got more eyeballs on you but you've also got staff to take care of you've got a fam like you just mm-hmm. go from being this person that's just got you to worry about yeah and selfishly you ride for fun or you want to win races mm-hmm. for the, your own feeling of wanting to win yeah but then it definitely shifts and it becomes about dude with this program like i have a bus and i have drivers and Mm. i have staff and i have like there's money going out and then you're trying to make enough money because you you know like it it hangs over your head especially in the the gig you're in you know like it hangs over your head that hey at any point this shit could be over and you could be injured and have to retire and i mean it fucking happened yeah no i mean there's been there's i've had you know a couple friends pass away from it i've had a lot of friends get hurt you know where they can't do it again um you know, and it's, it is something, you know, luckily the group I had around me, they understood me, you know, and they let me kind of do a lot of the stuff, um, I needed to do to put myself in the right place. Um, but like I said, from the outside, sometimes, you know, people just don't understand it. And it's like, you know, I, I can easily see how people, you know, oh, you know, can be arrogant or he's a prick or he's just, you know, he doesn't wave or he's tunnel vision and, you know, I just, when I was racing, it was about winning. And like I told you earlier, if there's like a road right or left and more attention's the right way and left is less, I'm going left, you know, every time. And it's, uh, it's just, it's not about me not, you know, appreciating the fans or anything like that. It's just, I'm so focused on it, you know, and that's, that's kind of, it's, it's not a great thing in some ways, but then in some ways that's what made me, you know, be able to do what I did. Did you feel a lot of pressure in those aspects of your life? Like not even just the pressure to win, but just providing and retirement. And was it something you really thought much about? No, I mean, I just, I felt the pressure to win, you know, because when you're, because, you know, we had some decent, you know, luck in America and then we won the Superbike titles and then we went, you know, in race world Superbike and won that the first year. And then that put me into MotoGP where everybody's like, okay, you know, is he going to win? Is he going to win a championship and all this kind of stuff? And, you know, um, 
and it's just and that was the natural that was the natural step with GP and and again it was something that I wouldn't say I wanted to do it so much I respected it but I knew the differences in the bikes you know and I tested them a couple times but you know I got it was just at the decision where you know Valentino they I think they kind of knew he was going to be leaving you know in a couple years mm. and we were almost done with the 09 season and they were wanting me to sign for GP but at that point, I was coming back in the points. I was still in second. Um, so it wasn't a lock that I was going to win the championship. But I had to make that decision before, you know, and then go do GP. And now that I look back at it, you know, I'm not upset at all that I did, you know, that I did GP. But I know I wasn't able to get 100% out of me and the bike. And it's it's my fault, you know. But it there was, there was probably three or four days on the bike that – I felt as comfortable as I did on a superbike. Like I was able to get everything out of me and it felt great and all the stuff. It was just a different style of riding the bike because I went from thousands to when they were 800s. And it was more like a big 250 and, and just a, a different way of riding a, a bike. You know, it's more corner speed. It's a little bit less braking and upsetting the bike. And I just couldn't get it as quickly as other people. And they had been, obviously the Europeans, they're raised, you mm -hmm. know, that way. And then you have the superbike guys that come over, and and I don't think any superbike guys ever, you know, went over there and like I said won the champ. Besides Nicky, you know, won the superbike um, that year. But then after that, you know, he was I wouldn't say a couple, you know, he was just a little bit behind the the top top guys. And we talked about it a lot too. And I mean, it's just it's difficult to because the bikes are so different. You know, a superbike to a super sport bike is a massive difference, but a GP bike to a superbike is way bigger you know there's no weight transfer mm. you can't you know like with a super bike if you're kind of off a little bit or, or feeling something with the bike you can manipulate it as in you know getting a little bit more weight to the front you can override it a bit you can and with the gp bike it's kind of like you know if you're if you're at a lap time when the race starts that's kind of where you're at you know mm. it's it's hard to do things with the bike to make it work um when you're not you know you're not fully in tune with it and that was what I struggled with just because again I was a late breaker I like to break as late as I could get the thing stopped rotated and pick it up you know and get out of the corner a GP bike you know the the best analogy compared to superbike is like you go into a corner you let off the brake earlier and you pretend you're in a rut mm. or like a bobsled turn almost where you've got that you know you're trying to get force in the side of the tire and that gives you the the roll speed, you know, through the through the corner. So my style, just in general, was not good for it. And it's kind of like the same thing where you see with Top Rack, the way he rides the bike. He's unbelievable, and you know, he's got some of the most talent of, of anybody. I mean, I put him up there close with Marquez and them. Really, when it comes with raw talent. Yeah. But if he gets on a GP bike. He's gonna. He has to go through a phase where he will, he'll struggle a little bit, you know. And it's because how he rides the bike and how those bikes need to be ridden. He he tested them and you know kind of had the same comments a little bit of what I thought it was gonna be. And because I talked with him a little bit and we talked about GP and and I said, man, I just I think with your age and the bikes you've been brought up your whole life, you know, it's gonna be tough, you know, because we've seen the people that have done it and and all that kind of stuff. Or you can build a legacy, you know, and, and win a few world superbike titles like Johnny Ray did, mm. which, which again, Johnny Ray, he, he was fast enough to be a MotoGP, but the way he rides the bike and what he's been used to his whole life, 
he's got to change his style and that might take something away from him you know so I think like I said Johnny Ray staying and winning five or six titles was a better move than going to GP you know and I'm not because I had great races with Johnny I just know when you're used to riding super bikes or super sport bikes your whole life you're going to have some tendencies that aren't good for GP yeah you know? and you see like <laughs> I think you know you sort of said it when we we're at breakfast that here it's so much more production based motorcycles that you're turning into race bikes Mm -hmm. and racing whereas when you go to europe then you're basically racing race bikes forever yeah and it just changes the development of you as a rider yeah no it it does and you know there was a lot of things we tried um, with the bike i tried with my style and you know we i wasn't slow over there but i just it, you know, you just I, didn't have the feeling. I didn't. Yeah, I never felt like I was operating at a hundred percent. I was just not comfortable on that bike and that type of riding style. Because I was, you know, my first superbike title I, was with no traction control in two thousand six. That so, seems so wild to think about. So it was kind of like the most analog bike to ride, the fastest, most refined analog bike, and then the the electronics started taking off. So I had been ingrained riding those bikes you know from 18 to when i won the first title and then all this stuff starts taking off with the electronics then you have the difference in the bikes too and that's just there's so much going on i just couldn't i couldn't get the package to be a hundred percent in europe in gps and again that's most of it's my fault you know and and it's just it was a a riding style thing and a, a comfort thing again we weren't slow but it wasn't you know i felt like we could have done more not saying we could have won the title or i'm not saying we could have won all these all these races but i just i was never at home on the bikes i wasn't what what is the main differences like if if you had to kind of obviously everything but like this the stiffness um the stiffness is way more there there's less that's feel yeah and there's well and there's less yeah and there's just like i was gonna say there's just complete less feel and you got the casings of the tire in MotoGP are a lot stiffer mm. than they are on superbikes. So you've got, you know, everything that's just working differently. Where superbike, you have so much feel, you know, with the bike, and you can you can do things differently and, and pivot it and kind of rotate it in the middle of the corner because the grip from the tires is a little bit lower, but it's also got that roll uh, yeah, in the casing. Yeah, yeah. Where the GP bikes, it's just a, it's a completely stiff. different thing, yeah. you know. And if you want to. If, if you're wanting to get the, you know, the bike to have that little bit more bite or on a super bike, you could, if you're going through a corner, you could just kind of get back to the gas a little bit and then get off of it and get it to kind of get down and tighten mm. up and finish the corner where a GP bike, those little increments in the corner. Upset the bike instead of stabilizing. Or, or it doesn't change it. Mm. You know, it kind of, you can, where you kind of get to the throttle, you could get the rear spin and without the bike actually dipping down or the front changing because they're just so stiff and they Mm. have you know i would say they have half the weight transfer as in just front to back when you're braking or or something like that yeah which that's kind of everything like when i'm riding a moto that's Mm -hmm. sort of what i'm the first port of call is Mm -hmm. to just balance out the bike so that it's not having these big weight transfers back and back and front or not enough it's it's more almost thinking about like having a uh you know a new motard bike and it's got you know motocross suspension on it with slick tires like Mm. you you feel that type of weight transfer compared to a fully set up super moto bike 
that's you know that's the difference you're looking at with superbike and gp yeah and flex is such a crazy thing i was watching uh i think it's mike on bikes if you, i don't know if you've ever seen his youtube mm-hmm. channel there's this guy that has this fantastic youtube channel he's a european guy and yeah he explains so much about you know like just rotating mass and the gyroscopic effect like he really breaks down the science of motorcycles and i kind of never really understood exactly what flex was Mm -hmm. and it's basically no i'm not telling you this like you don't know but (laughs) it's like when you lean the bike over the suspension stops going up and down and the force starts going up and basically lifting the tire off the ground so if you hit a Mm -hmm. a bump or the tire is then going to go vertically yeah and it's like if you don't that's where the stiffness and rigidity comes in because if you have a little bit of flex when you're on the side of the bike you actually the front wheel has a bit of room to go upwards or on like a horizontal plane Mm -hmm. and all the rear has a bit to go on a horizontal plane yeah but that's all in metal <laughs> like yeah. that's the that's chassis yeah. suspension essentially like that's probably the easiest way of saying it, is like once you tip the bike over to a certain point the suspension stops going up and you're expecting the chassis to be suspension yeah and the, the way the front of the the front of the head spar works and the chassis getting the right flex and that you know and that's you know two examples of kind of talking like that was racing at imola you know, we, um, we raced there and we tested there, you know, in the 09 season. But when we got there, I mean, I wasn't in the race for the win. I was in the race for like third or fourth. And no matter what I did, you know, we couldn't get that bike to work. And then the Ducati, it was that trellis chassis. Mm. So the thing flexed and just walk away from you. And it's like, God, like it's, it was such a big difference. And then, you know, kind of looking back at AMA days, there was a track called Brainerd. And turn one is wicked fast. It was on a super bike. It was pretty much, you know, six gear getting down to the end of straightaway, no brakes, back one gear, and pretty much wide open. No, it's wicked, <laughs> and, it, and it's banked, and it's kind of bumpy, and it's gnarly. But I remember watching Kaczynski go through there on a Ducati, and the Ducatis they were just so much better through there because they had the flex. Yeah. And it, you could just, like a good rider, a good mechanic could go sit at the end of pit wall and watch, you know, a Cowie Superbike come through there, like Chandler came through there, and then here comes Kaczynski. You can just see it. I mean, it's night and day different. So there's, there's that, you know, that fine line of having the right flex, but not too much. You yeah. know, the, it's tough. The craziest thing I think I've ever seen motorcycle-wise was I went to Trentino this year to mm. watch the MXGP. Yeah. And so Fevra's bike, I don't know, I'll ask if I can talk about it. I'll delete it if I have to. But hmm. they they have the, the factory frame on his new, they they built that new 24 Cowie, right? Yeah. And so the, all the top tube, all that to the basically the V, yeah. like the bottom cradle of the frame. The bottom cradle of that frame was CNC yeah. machined, right? Mm-hmm. So they were just taking all this metal out to get the flex. Mm-hmm. And you could hear it thump. Like you could hear the you could hear the chassis mm-hmm. absorbing bumps. Like mm-hmm. it was the crazy, and like hmm. I'm standing there at the end of um at the they got a finish line, and then it was just these gnarly bumps mm-hmm. coming into a left hander, yeah. and then out. And you can just the energy of the yeah, bumps in yeah, the bike, you yeah. can hear it, yeah. and like you hear hurlings come past, Prado come past, and it was just like a mechanical like clanging of you like you you hear 
you, you could hear the rigidity mm-hmm. and everything slapping. And then his, his was more like and a it was thump. And it was the craziest. And so then I was talking to Tucker about it. And he's like, oh, it's CNC machine. And, the, you know, it's only going to last X amount of hours. Mm-hmm. And, we were, and I'm just like, wow. Yeah. And, and what what Ephedra would say mm-hmm. is that you just feel comfort through your feet. Yeah. Like you can feel the chassis kind of giving. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like the extreme example of that is like you get on a, a 03 YZ 250 mm-hmm. and you kickstart the bike and <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. it literally feels like it's flexing at the subframe, uh, the, the swinging on pivot bolt. You but know? then in like, you know, in, in, in not hindsight, but, you know, looking at it differently with uh Fever's bike like you were talking about like that you know you take that to supercross it might oh no not. No, no you can't <laughs> it's be gonna be that. like the old ktm chassis where it's like it's great when it's, it's a rubber band. Lo- low whoops and it's <laughs> yeah. a hard packed track because it's got the grip yeah. you know and that's what you usually see i mean when they get to like the dry slick you know super hard packed tracks the softer chassis are going to work better you yeah. know, they're just going to have more grip more feel and and all that kind of stuff. But when you're running these whoops that are, you know, four and a half foot tall or something, you can't have that, you know. Did you did you have much to do with any of that sort of top level moto guys back then? No, I mean, I, I you know, I had a lot of friends, you know, yeah. kind of because we were sharing, Texas is a pretty good area. Yeah. And uh, and then when we were with Suzuki, you know, half of the race shop was road, half of it was moto. And that was, you know, Ricky was there. Because oh, it was Makita Suzuki when yeah. you were on it. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep. So like Ricky was there uh tedesco was yep. there like brock hepler Millsaps, um you know a lot of those guys so i got to you know kind of get to know them and and um you know watch them ride and, and all that stuff when you when you retired you got mm-hmm. to kind of like live a bit of a moto fantasy for a bit yeah because I, I i motoed a little bit um when i was a kid i was no good at it like jumping i just i couldn't get to grips with it yeah it was just i sucked <laughs> you know yeah. i was a good flat tracker but i wasn't a good moto rider and then when I was like 16, 17, you know, I kind of got better with it, started having more fun. Um, and then I, uh, I did, I did ride a lot, you know, in the 06 and 07 season. Then I separated my shoulder, um, before the season, two weeks before the season and actually raced the whole season with it separated. That was my first title in 06. And, um, so rode a lot then. And then when I signed with Yamaha, I couldn't ride. They wouldn't let it. Really? So, and I was kind of in Europe too, so it was a different thing. I didn't have all my stuff. And um, so, yeah, I just wasn't really into it as much. And then when I retired, you know, I started riding again. And it was one of those things where I couldn't ride too long at, or at a, just 100%, but I could move around and, and it was fun. Um, and I had my old track at, you know, my land that I used to train on and kind of fixed it up. And Casey came over and we rode a lot and, and uh, had some fun. He can ride a moto, good. Eh? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, he's 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 got that feel. I mean, again, he was. We both weren't great jumpers. I was a little bit more comfortable than him, but anytime you were on the ground, oh. it was on. You know, it, we we had some good good little battles out there. It was fun. We uh we we went riding. It was actually a couple of years ago now. Pretty much made him buy a four fifty after the podcast. I was like, yeah. bro, what are you doing? Yeah, and uh, yeah, you you go out and the this like the corner speed yeah and like the way that troy herfoss is the same actually he's mm. he he rides like really he raced in america some yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i remember yeah, him yeah he raced um 
he was actually in a race in Australian National before before I came over here. We were training. Oh, so he rolls then. Oh, rolls like rolls. Jake Garnier fast. Yeah, like he. I mean, I don't know what he would have got. Like just because the track gets so gnarly. But if yeah. you if you put him on like a normal track, a normal day, like a practice day, mm-hmm. not like a national, I'd say he would be able to go a pretty solid speed. I think once shit starts getting gnarly like gnarly. the knee deep ruts and stuff it's, like that it's just because you don't do it as much like even i rode i've been running Glen helen every week i've been here mm-hmm. and then i rode it on saturday and i went there at 12 o'clock and mm-hmm. it was a different track that i'd ever rode. and i'm like okay so yeah. there's there's levels but as far as a guy being able to run a really good pace mm-hmm. like he is insane but you can just see the way that you guys see corners is a lot different to yeah. the way a moto guy sees corners, the way that you turn in the bike, the way yeah. that yeah, like even, you know, her that was his big thing is like, Oh, I'm just trying to get the weight transfer. Like I just yeah. got to get that right. Like yeah. that's everything to oh, him yeah. in a, in a motorcycle or motocross bike or mm-hmm. any motorcycle where other people or mm-hmm. motor, more motor people like sort of don't really care, yeah. but there's such a cool, way you guys look at corners and corner speed and it's just and it depends what type of corner it is you know if it's kind of an open flatter turn you know it's it's obviously a little bit different when it gets all deep rutted and everything that's when the experience goes out the window but um but now there's there's again like i brought up gagne i don't know if you know about him riding moto but dude i've never seen him but he rolls i mean he um it was a few years ago now maybe three years ago something like that maybe four years ago but he uh he rode a factory Yamaha in an outdoor at um Salt Lake City that track that they had inside the racetrack. Nice. And he no he ran an AMA National and didn't finish last. Like he hurt his knee I think and he didn't ride Moto Two, but like he finished like twenty fifth or something in a four fifty Moto. And I mean he just I know he's always ridden and stuff, but he kind of got that bike, put in a little bit of time and and did it. And for a road racer to do that, I mean that's I don't know anybody else that's done there that fast. Man, have you ever seen Jack Miller ride moto? No, he's quick. I haven't seen him, but I definitely know he rides. <laughs> like gnarly, dude. Yeah. And just thirties. Yeah. Like he will just go. I don't mm-hmm. I've never I've never seen many other people ride as yeah. much as him. He'll ride like four bikes in a day. Yeah. And he'll put thirty five liters of fuel. Yeah, that's it. and that's how I was kinda back in oh six, oh seven days. I'd get a stock, you know, a couple two fifties from Suzuki, put a pipe on them get the forks done, get the shock done, but not, you know, A-kit stuff, just kind of getting them done. And and then... CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know, I just change air filters and ride. And, I mean, I used to do so many kind of 30-minute motos. And and um, it just, if you can stay off the ground, 
you know, when it comes to physical training, right, there's a lot of things to do, but motocross kind of checks most of the boxes. Mm. Um, but you're, you know, the quicker you go, the more risk that you have. Yeah. So I, I kind of built a track that was pretty mellow, you know, it was like a vet track, but it was like a minute 50 long. Um, and I had sprinklers, I had like 150 sprinklers the whole track. (laughs) So I could water it at night before them wake up and it's all, you know, good and just rode so much. And, um, and again, it was kind of, you know, I didn't let it get super ruddy. You know, I'd kind of always keep it where I was trying not to, you know, get my knees stuck in something or, or do something like that. So, um, yeah, no, I love that track. That's what Casey got to ride yeah. when he came. I remember him telling me ages ago that he used to go to your place and mm-hmm. loved loved riding it. You had like a three fifty or something there that he rode. Yeah, had a had a three fifty and then um, had a two fifty F, and then I'd always kind of borrow another bike when he was in town. Um, we'd invite people out there and and uh, we had fun. It was it was really good. Yeah, I think Texas is just sick for that. Yeah, like, and the dirt, the dirt we have is crazy. Yeah, right? no, it's it's really good. It's a lot of that kind of sandy loam with a little bit of clay in it. So, no, some good riding spots, and you know, I, I miss you know riding kind of the dirt bike at that level. But you know, after I had a pretty good crash, yeah. you know, a few years ago, it just kind of changed everything a little yeah. bit. Yeah, that. Have you spoke much about that crash? No. No, you saw the video. I've seen the video, and that yeah. was really bad. That's yeah. like worst, unfortunately, worst case scenario. Yeah, and it was, you know, it's probably one of the closer times, you know, I've gotten to not be in here, you know, and it's just, you know, it's something just happens, got run over, you know, on a track, and, you know, it broke broke my arm in like nine or ten places, and um, like three or four ribs in my neck, and. Um, you know, just the way it kind of scorpioned me into the ground, like you saw it, so it just, bad. it was bad. And I, it, I'm really lucky, you know, there's no doubt. And then when I just came home, got two little daughters and I was just like, you selfish prick, like mm. you can't do that shit, you know? So I'm not, not done riding, but I've got to make it where it's just fun because anytime I get on a bike, I can't help it, but start trying to go. Wick it up a bit. You know, and so I've kind of got into cars where I can, go to that level but it's safer Mm. and uh like i said i'll I'll do stuff on the bikes but i just it's a problem with my mentality a little bit too it's just you want to you want to just start you know squeezing it and and going and you know it's just i don't need to be doing that stuff anymore i think too like sort of not to you know keep coming back to it but i think that the whole like being introverted thing when you can do something that's so complex and so focused and mm-hmm. you don't have to talk to anybody, you don't have to be around anybody. Yeah. Like it, it really does make sense that that's a place where you want to spend mm-hmm. a lot of time. Like it's just so isolated, but you're also getting so much out of it. It's so complex. Yeah. And it, it kind of even, you know, it, it was that was cycling for me, road cycling. Because mm, same when, sort I, of deal. when I moved to Europe, you know, I was, I was in Italy didn't really know anybody. I had my, you know, mechanics living with me, but just, you know, didn't have my motocross bike. So I'd go out on my bicycle and I was doing, you know, a few, a couple, you know, four to six hour rides, you know, with like pro cyclist kind of thing. And you're doing kind of like two climbs in a ride that are 40 minutes long. You just turn on your iPad and just look at your power meter or something and just start going, you know, and, and it's, uh, helped pass the time, you know, really good for me when I was living there. Um, but it's kind of the same thing, you know, you get locked in and nobody can mess with you. Nobody's talking with you and, and escape a bit. And and what, 
so cars is, is that like kind of the main thing that gets you there now yeah now because it's it's something that you know it's not motorcycles but you're doing a lot of the same stuff the same lines on tracks and you know you got a harness in a in a cage so it's it's something that you like a bike i can't get on a bike on a road race bike and go back to definitely not that level of speed but not just pushing that hard like i'm mm. not i'm not gonna do it yeah, i'm, I'm yeah. not i'm not riding enough to do it but you know it's and it's but it's something you want to do yeah like when you get on a bike and with a car you can go to that level and it's a whole lot safer so yeah. that that's the big reason for for car stuff i mean there was there was a few years ago now we were at willow springs and uh me and casey were riding for an a stars ride day yeah and we had two r1s and you know we were just kind of messing around the whole day with other people because there was like Barsh was out there riding yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. uh you know a couple other guys and and then there was one session we just kind of got linked up and we started riding together yeah. and he passed me upped it up a little I, I passed him you know and then i kind of i look at what we're you know we're going through turn two at willow and we're starting to like fully slide the bikes on the exits <laughs> and do all this stuff and you know he passed me again like between eight and nine at willow like that's pretty gnarly and he came up the inside of me and i was like little all right and, and it turned into the people that were in the pits we i could see them. everyone's just watching they started guys. walking yeah. out to yeah. pit lane yeah. and i was like oh snap you know so i outbraked him in turn one and kind of was all in there all sideways and when i came out on the exit i turned around and i was like yo that we good we need to stop you know and we were dying laughing about it but that's just you know that's what it turns into it's funny though, like that whole feeling of full clip, like that's the thing I love the most about jujitsu. Yeah. That is the martial art. I've actually been thinking about, because I want to put my, my daughters Dude, into it so they it. can protect themselves, but do also it. I need to know jujitsu for when they're 16 because <laughs> it ain't, uh-uh. Texas jujitsu comes in a, in a, in a holster, doesn't it? That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not afraid with that, but also I need to know what to do with my hands a little bit because. Man, if you've got girls. Oh dude. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's, there's some pretty amazing chicks yeah. that, that do jujitsu. And I think that there's just like a level of, there's a level of confidence that, I mean, even I have, you know, like I talk about all the time with people. Mm -hmm. It's like, I think the best thing about it is that. You like, know you can take care of yourself. And it makes me just not care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like I can, I've had, I've had multiple occasions, probably there's been three since I've been training where just a guy's come up to me and it's just, there's been one of those situations. Like one of them was, was in a nightclub. One of them was in a casino in New Zealand. And, uh, and you know, got like, it was three in the morning. The boys mm. had just done Supercross. It was like me, Chad Reed, Dean Wilson, like my mate Sam. We're, we're just kind of in a corner on the piss like yeah. having a laugh with the boys and the guy comes up and and gets in tries to get a photo with the boys and i was like hey mate it's 3 a.m anaheim ones in like four weeks yeah like, this isn't a really a photo that can get taken yeah and old mate just blew up like fuck you i'm never getting a fucking chance to get a photo with chad reed again and i yeah. was just like hey man okay. listen yeah, calm down. i'm just gonna tell you right now yeah. this is not a thing that you would mm -hmm. want to do right now unless yeah you have some crazy secret martial arts ability <laughs> that that i am not seeing in you <laughs> and i was like so Your appearance is yeah. it <laughs> i was like i feel like i know enough about this situation to know that you need to leave right it's, now it's those times or it's also you know when you're in new york on a subway station right yeah. or something and somebody yeah. starts doing 
the type of shit that makes you nervous. And there's a group and it's like, at least, okay, well, if he gets to level 10, then I can jump on him and, and whatever. So that's, that's, you know, that reason just protecting the family and and also protecting when the girls get older, because I know how it is. And, you know, I'm, um, I'm, I'm outspoken, you know, sometimes and I need to have the rest of it to, to go with it. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so yeah, I've got a couple of years, but I'm not, I want to start with that just to learn because I know it's good. I mean, it's a good workout. It's, it's good in a lot of ways, but you know, for p- protecting them and also putting them into it so they can protect themselves. You know, I don't want to do just like the Taekwondo and I'm not no disrespect to it, but when it comes to the girls, like I've got to have them know how to just defend themselves and yeah. kind of hurt somebody if they have to. You well, know, especially at the, the school level as well, because for a long time in a girl's life mm. till 14, probably, you know, 12, 13, 14, there's not that much of a physical difference yeah. between boys and girls. Yeah. So it's like, I think that you and know, sometimes the girls are bigger for a little for bit. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So I think especially in school, that's one of those things where like a girl could really learn to stick up for themselves from mm-hmm. like a really young age yeah. and have that confidence because it's the confidence. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. And that's the thing where I think, you know, so much shit can go wrong in a, in a street fight. Like you don't want a street fight. That's no. like the long and the short of it. Yeah. But in the times that I've had those altercations with people, I, I well, from what I take away is that people can see that I don't care. Like they can see I'm not scared. Yeah. They can see that it's not, I'm, the, fully, the, I'm fully prepared to do whatever we've got to do, whether the dude fucking beats yeah. me up or whatever. But there's a level of, I'm like, okay, I go to the gym every single day and I beat people that train at this for years. Yeah. So it's like, if you've never trained at this and you don't know any of this stuff, you don't have a chance. And that level of confidence then let you deal with the situation where I'm like, hey, buddy, let's not do this. I got this skill set. You don't. That means I win, you lose. Let's avoid it. And, and some of the times, not all the times, but I think some of the times when you have that confidence and that kind of situation happens, you know, half the people I would hope they see that. It's and they're, very they're like They're like, okay. Yeah. They're like, I know he's not. He either is just crazy and doesn't care or he knows that he doesn't need to be scared. Yeah. You know. And I can also see it in other people. Like there was one time I was at I was at Huntington Beach and I got it, I got in like a bit of an altercation, but it wasn't. A th- it was more like I'm trying to break people up and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. But then I ended up getting booted from this place, and then I had some fucking chick was screaming at me for this guy. <laughs> so I was pretty rattled, right? Yeah, yeah. So then I've gone across the street to another bar. I'm like, I'm out of here. And then instantly I walked up the stairs, and this dude just smashed into me, and I'm like, and I ended up like in a in a into a pole and like hit another dude and and i looked at and i saw the dude and i'm like that dude wrestles <laughs> like oh, yeah. i just instantly knew mm-hmm. and instead of like my my reaction would have been fucker you know blowing yeah. up like an idiot and i yeah. saw that guy and i was like hey mate real sorry yeah. like you know so i think just it gives you such a awareness of who like what tough like not oh, yeah. tough but you know but um i think it's just that what makes it so fun though is it's kind of like a car. Like when if you're boxing or taekwondo or whatever, you can't go to the gym and go 100% every yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you kind of like you're always holding back and you never re- unless you fight competitively, yeah, yeah. you never kind of like really know. Mm-hmm. But that I think that's one of the cool things with jujitsu is like you can get in there every day. Mm-hmm. Like my wife can go 100% as hard as she can on me, mm-hmm. and it's cool. 
That's cool. You know, like the the risk of injury is super low. No, my wife even wants to kind of get, we just, we haven't done it yet, but we've been talking the last six months that it's probably, you know, a good thing to do. And we have a lot of friends that like they're kids and, and they do it and they love it, you know, so. Well, if, uh, if I end up coming to Texas in November, mm-hmm. I'll just take you to do, we'll just mm-hmm. do like a private session with someone, you know, because it's a cool, it's a cool way to. Yeah, I think you'd love it too, like the problem solving. Probably side get of it. into it pretty heavy. I know myself. Dude, so. it, it ruined my life for the first couple of years. Yeah, yeah, like I went, I went from zero mm-hmm. to just two years of training, probably five, six days a week. I went to Thailand. I was, I was going, oh, wow. I was going all over trying to, because you sort of you realize so. well, now i know you've done it so much when i asked you if your your girl could take you i didn't think you did jujitsu <laughs> <laughs> you're like no no i'm good i'm like well is she good then but now that i know you train i get it <laughs> yeah well she uh yeah i just i got into when you realize how much you don't know oh, yeah. and how like how deep the rabbit hole goes yeah that's what sucks people in oh yeah and you can get good quick yeah because nowadays like the information that you can get like oh, yeah. there's, I, I feel sorry. There's like a, there's like these old black belt guys. They're like 45, 50 years old. The way old. that they That'd had be, to learn. Oh, and you, in, in like in six months, yeah. you can just be like a, an absolute problem. Yeah. If you use every resource, read mm-hmm. every book, watch every DVD, yeah. watch every, like every amazing match ever is on you. Like the body of information oh, yeah. that you can... I mean, you can study constantly, you know, and as soon as you know, I guess, when you've probably done, say, like 10 classes and you have an understanding of kind of all the basic stuff and then you're watching, you know, people like a Gordon Ryan or somebody like that, it's like, okay, I, I can see everything and that's awesome. Like, that's nuts. How, but, how far away from Austin are you? I think three and a half hours. Okay, something yeah. Something like that. Because that's... <clears throat> Austin is kind of like the new jiu-jitsu hub of america basically oh wow yeah yeah so gordon ryan i can't even believe you knew who gordon ryan was actually yeah um so gordon ryan moved there with john danaher who he's like the like the genius Mm -hmm. kind of belichick dude of of that whole world and then he split with they had like they was called the danaher death squad and then they split Mm -hmm. so then there was like another the, the crew that split opened up another gym and just all of these people have just started moving Austin basically because this crew of mm-hmm. like seven dudes is there. That's and cool. now, and then I think flow grappling is there yeah. and then they're like the, the, I don't know, the biggest kind of promotion website sort of mm-hmm. deal. So like the whole, yeah, Texas is pretty, there's a, there's a younger kid too that I was, I was watching a little bit. His name's Michael Musumeci. Yeah. That dude's, I mean, he's an animal for his size, like an animal. He's just going to lay back and it's like, come get some. Oh, and that and dude's ridiculous. He is going to rip your leg off. Oh, yeah. Completely, like, completely you're gone. And I see, like, those guys, how they can stay composed when they've got sometimes the guys that are, like, trying to get rough on them to break their deal and they just they stay at it. Like, yeah. you can see they're just staying, trying to hook the leg or doing whatever they're doing because they've got that math problem in their head, you know, oh. and they're just not letting stuff upset them when – It'd be hard not to, okay, you know, let's just fight then. <laughs> well, that's, you said like you had Asperger's for mm-hmm. motorcycles. Yeah. Like, I think Musumeci literally has Asperger's. Yeah. Like all the dudes that, there's a, there's like these two brothers from Brazil, the Meow brothers. Yeah. And they're just full blown, like they've got some Asperger's stuff going on. Yeah. And they, you know, people will do, I think that's the other crazy thing with that sport is like, you talk about 10,000 hours. 
to be proficient at something. Like they're probably doing ten thousand hours a year. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, they're they're ma- a lot of the guys that are at the top level. I mean, they're literal they're masters. Mm. They've mastered it, kind of thing, you know. So, no, it's been it's been something I've just watched because I watch a little bit of UFC fighting and stuff like that, and I've just in the past year I've kind of watched jujitsu more and more and kind of started seeing the names and just you know have an interest in it. You yeah. Know? No, I'll, I'll definitely try and help you get cool. linked up with some stuff. So we talked a bit about like Marquez uh, before. What do you think of MotoGP from a fan's perspective? now like where do you do you like where the sport's going what do you think they should change like where are you at with it i you know the wings and the aerodynamic part of it um i'm not i haven't been on board with it as much just because it's it's tightened the passing zones down a lot more where you know there's some of the, there's some corners you know, there's some big passing corners, and then there's some where you could used to sneak by and just if you're setting something up, whatever. And then the way the downforce is working, it's shortening those zones up. Mm. So it's just making a lot of passing harder, you know, in that way. It's also whoever's obviously hitting the aerodynamics the hardest and the best is, is obviously Ducati, and they're in a different place. Um, and then kind of even looking at the sprint races, you know, I'm looking at it from a rider standpoint first and it's, you know, the way those tires work and the rigidity of those bikes that, you know, in the first two laps, they're, they're pretty difficult to ride (laughs) at speed, you know, like getting into, and you can have a lot of like little front lockups like Marquez in Portugal when he was following and he, he had to let off the brake, let it straighten out, but then he got into somebody and you have these sprint races that are short races and so much is just decided on the first two laps mm. when it's the sketchiest to ride the bike at, yeah. you know, that pace. So, you know, but it's, it has brought some good racing, but it's, it's brought, you know, some crashes and injuries too. Um, and the guys are racing like 44 races a year when you look at the sprints, you know, cause I think they're doing 22 weekends. I think it is 40. Yeah. It's, I think you're right. Yeah. It's so 41 it's 40, 42 races, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's a lot. And, you know, I'm, a fan of the racing for sure, but I just, the, what the aerodynamics and the ride height devices and all that stuff, it's, you're going faster and then technology's there, but sometimes it affects the racing, mm. you know? And that's where I've just always said that for the fans, the fans really don't care about a lap time or a lap record. You know, they mm. want to see good racing. And sometimes you can see the best racing, like when you're, when you're on rain tires and, yeah. and the yeah. track starts drying. Yeah. And there's just a limit, you know, but the the limit is where... But it's who's finding the limit and how are they finding the limit? Well, the way I look at it too is it's kind of, it's like the tire can be a little bit more the deciding factor where if you've got a lower performing tire that's still safe, I mean, it's going to go race distance, all that stuff. It's a little bit lower level. All the bikes can get to that level. Mm. Where in the past with GP, there's been like one or two manufacturers that basically hit the nail on the head with that tire other people their bike just doesn't work as good on it and they suffer the whole year where if they sit there and came in and it's kind of like world superbike with the with the pirellis and it's not that they're a bad tire at all but they have a tire that pretty much all the manufacturers can kind of get to the they can extract the time out of that tire yeah and you're the fast guys the guys that win are still going to win but the race is going to be closer there's going to be more passes 
and bigger passing zones. And I just look at it from a racing standpoint, you know, um, on that. And that's where MotoGP is going so much in the other direction of aerodynamics. And like I said, the anti-wheelie where the bike's lower and then it makes the wheelbase super long. So it doesn't wheelie and you're able to use all the power and it's a lot of cool stuff, but you know, is the racing any better, you mm-hmm. know, and it's just a lot more money when, you know, if anything in the future, maybe some of that stuff gets pulled off because they got to slow the guys down too. Mm-hmm. you know, now that they're doing 360 K's an hour at Magello, you just can't be, you know, cause again, just from a rider, I know that when you go into turn one, you're going over that rise and the bike's kind of wheeling right there. So everything's topped out, you know, in the suspension. Mm. And then you're going into a big braking zone. If you're the third or fourth rider in line and everybody's just kind of spread out, you know, doing their thing after they've been single file on the straightaway, if you don't brake before they do, you know, you're in a real world of trouble because everything starts buffeting. You're getting sucked in. You know, so you're just not able to hold max brake pressure. And then you start running up in there. And if you're, you know, the fourth rider in line, there's nowhere to go. And Alex Marquez had that happen at Magello, and he threaded the needle. And it was just like basically you could see it happening, and he was coming in there. And then he he saw that gap, and he just kind of let off everything to get through it, basically to clear himself. Because if he kept trying to stop, he was going to – I think he was going to take Mark out. I think mm-hmm. that's who it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. He, he got in there, and he got through him, and then he, he could run wide, and they kind of passed him. But for that – you know, there was like about 70 meters of the section. It was super dicey. And I saw the whole thing and I was like, oh my God. And that's the, they're just going so fast now, you know, and it's, it's not about the top speed or the, the lap record for me. It's about the racing, you know? So I just hope that, you know, for the future that they look at everything, you know, because for a long time they were trying to make racing tighter and that's when they went back to 800s. And then they went to a spec ECU where everybody had to use the same thing. But I kind of would say every time, well, it's like if you just bring a tire that's just a little bit lower level, not a bunch, but just a little bit, you're not having to make all these crazy R&D changing that costs so much money, Mm. so much money for the factories because, you know, they're racing thousands and they go back to 800s. Then they go back to thousands. And then you got the aerodynamics. So just that engine change in those years like the millions of dollars that the teams had to spend to do that and trying to accomplish the same thing that if they just brought a tire that was 15% lower level as like single outright lap time, it lasted the whole race and was ever, it was fine. It just didn't have that mm. super high level. You would achieve the same thing. Yeah. You know, cause the tire at the end of the day, that's one of the most deciding, you know, factors. And if you're making a tire, that's just unbelievable. You're trying to make the bike that can, stay with that tire, make it work the best where that's one of the bigger issues. Yeah. And then what about the electronic stuff? Like, do you think that, cause the problem is like, it's amazing when it works, but then as soon as it doesn't work, it's just a complete disaster, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've never had much good things to say about just all the electronics because it's, you know, it's something I kind of struggled with a little bit too, but it's um it's part of it i get it it's getting transferred to the street you know it works you know in a great way but it's it's really sophisticated they've kind of went backwards a little bit in a couple spots but you know i remember there's a year that you know if your bike knows it's going to run out of gas it'll basically go into an auto lean mode to make it to the 
the finish or if it, mm. you know, it's just, it's, it kind of, it was adjusting basically. And I did not like that, but, um, but that was kind of the electronics are, you know, a big factor in race. I mean, you're spending is probably more time looking at the data on the electronic side than you're looking at with the geometry of the bike, because you're, you know, the bikes are pretty close, pretty set up and dialed when you get to the track. So the amount of time that it's just the computer, you know, and those little bitty things is a lot, you know, and I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's, it's sometimes I think it's getting a a little bit heavy, you know, with the electronics. I mean, you never see a a guy coming out of a corner sideways, you know, and it's, that's fun to watch, you know, um, just a little, it doesn't have to be like old school where you got smoke coming off the tire, but the bikes, but we would appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) But the bikes just don't get upset or move around as much as they used to, you know? I know there was a uh, there was a case this year with Millsy where his bike was just lost. Mm-hmm. Thought he was on a different part of the track. Oh yeah. So like it obviously the the ECU basically changes yeah. corner to corner as yeah. to what engine braking. So he thought know. a certain level of traction control was going to be in it, and it wasn't. <laughs> well, and just like the the um, the engine braking coming in to you know obviously they'll like have max engine braking coming off one of the straights and then like basically no engine braking through yep. certain sections. Yeah. And so the bike was basically in a different turn in the computer than what it was on the track. And yep. then it's just 100% power through like the tight chicane where like they're mm-hmm. only delivering a small percentage. And th- the thing was just like, I got to get off the track. Yeah. And like when you get to a point where your bike glitches mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> and yeah. then it's like, you can't even ride it at all. And I think about like the, like uh peco's crash mm-hmm. you know recently like turn two yeah just dude gets the whole shot there's chaos going on behind him mm-hmm. and then like by himself in the he's lift, really he's really lucky that that you know and it sucks that the guys crashed in turn one. Oh, he's so, he's so lucky, lucky that happened because he would have had two other dudes yeah drilling. breathing down him yeah and it's just that was scary yeah yeah and it's and you know it's kind of i think some of the things have gotten better but you know it's it's just um yeah it's tough because the electronics can sometimes put you in a position that you don't want to be in and you can't get out of it because that's what like if you're going through a turn and you go to lose the front and you're you're already at max lean angle kind of max grip for the bike you try to pick it up with the throttle get you know try to pick mm. the front up the bike's not going to give you all that power because of the lean angle so you can kind of be stuck in that position with and, nowhere to go. Yeah. And that's, is kind of similar, you know, looking back at the Simicelli, you know, accident when that kind of started happening, I was commentating cause I'd had a concussion from the week before. So I was watching that happen live. No way. And, you know, I was supposed to be in the race and, you know, he's going through the corner, he loses front and, you know, and whether whatever happened, but I just know how the bikes are at that point where if you lose the front and you try to get on the throttle, you can either, if you didn't have all the electronics, you either plow through the front and you crash or it sometimes would high side you, but yeah. at least one of the two, you're, you're trying to get it out of that moment where, you know, he was kind of stuck just plowing the front, you know, and he just drove back across the track cause he couldn't get the bike picked up. So those little things, and again, it might not be everything that that's what went on, yeah. but, but definitely sometimes the electronics can put you in that position where you're asking for it, you're needing it, but it's because of not breaking the tire loose, it's not going to give it to you. So mm. that's kind of my issue with the electronics in general, but it's 2023. 
Mm. I get it. You know, you have development and, and all that kind of stuff, but they're just, they're, they're so high. And we always say that, you know, the bikes are at a high level, but you know, these guys don't have roll cages around them and they don't have seat belts. And when you look at the difference from Wayne Rainey on a 500 and Kevin Swans in the early nineties, and everybody said it was so crazy fast. And now they're doing the speeds they're doing now. It's like, when's, when's enough going to be enough. Mm. And it's the same thing even for four fifties, Yeah, you know, and all the guys will tell you, I mean, it's even the factory bikes, it's not about having more power in a supercross. It's making the power rideable. You know, and it's just a stock 450, you know, off the showroom floor. It's ridiculous. So we are getting kind of to that level where it's like mm. we got enough power. Yeah. You know, maybe too much sometimes. Man, even I've been riding that. The bike I've got at the moment's a XCF 350. Yeah. So I had one of those. Yeah. yeah they're yeah. awesome. Yeah. Six speed gearbox, 47, two, three, a sprocket. Oh, yeah. Like it's pretty fucking slow. Yeah. And, good yeah <laughs> like, i'm riding the 350 because it's slow it's nice because it, it doesn't have all that crazy torque but it pulls up top like a monster mm -hmm. you know that's why i tell people from the 350 it's it's kind of similar torque wise as a 250 not a giant difference but the top end is quite a bit more but when you get on a 450 the torque i mean it changes it's yeah. huge compared to a 350 and, you know, I'm not a bad rider on motocross. I'm not a bad rider in general. But when I get on a 450, it's just like, holy shit, this thing's fast. Like, oh, yeah. these other guys that are getting on them that just don't know as much, God, like, they can jump anything. It yeah, puts them a, in a position where they can jump anything, and sometimes that's not good. Man, David Pingree actually spoke about this point, and I hadn't really thought about it before. Uh, no, sorry, it wasn't Pingree. Kiefer, Chris Kiefer. Yeah. And he was saying that when you give a guy a 450, they make a mistake and they're just before a big step up or a big tabletop and they're like, fuck it, I'm on a 450. And it's like, the landing. Hey, yeah, and it goes, <laughs> woo, they're getting kicked sideways or they've gone way past the thing. And it's just like, yeah, on a 350, you make a mistake, then it's like, you just got to button off to this lap, buddy. So yeah, like, yeah. you're not, you're not making this one. Yeah. And yeah. But guess, that 450, until you're off the face of the jump, you've got that power. The whole time. Because just yeah. a, a roll in all the way. I mean, you're jumping so far on those things. So um, not anti like, oh, bikes got to get slower. But I just think we're getting to the point now where yeah. the 450 class and MotoGP and, and World Superbike, there's, there's a limit somewhere. Yeah. You know, and I think we're getting close to, I mean, 300, I think they did 366 kilometers an hour at Mugello and dude, that's moving, you know, I mean, the guys can, ha they're, they're used to it. They can handle it. But now when things slightly go wrong, that's, the breaking exactly zone, right. that's when it's like, oh shit, you yeah. know, we're, it's, it's getting too fast now. I, I honestly can't imagine today. Like I did the fastest I've ever been on my own bike is 290 at Phillip Island down the start straight. Mm -hmm. And that was on a, the V4 street fighter. So yep. that was on the naked bike. And yeah, I yeah. felt like one of those monkeys they shot into space. Yeah. <laughs> and my, but my buddy has one of those. He's a, they he, are mental dude. He's a neurosurgeon and he's got, you know, he's got trick cars and yeah. he's got, you know, a KTM 450, a YZ 250. And then the street fighter, it's kind of got all the cool stuff, you know? And, and I'm just like, Kurt, man, you know, how is that thing? And he's just like, it is so fast. I'm like, I know. Why do you have that bike? You know, it's just, it's ridiculous because it's a 210 horsepower bike. Yeah. It's, it's nuts. But um, so, but so I've capped out at 290. Yeah. So let's add what? 170 mm -hmm. Ks yep. on that. Yeah. And then, and then be, 
you know, have a guy to your right, five feet ahead, have, have a guy 12 feet ahead on the left. And then there's a guy, you know, in the middle, when you get all that stuff going on at that speed, like I said, if you're third or fourth in line and you don't initiate the breaks before they do, you're screwed. Yeah. You know, you can't stop. I mean, you just, cause like I said, there's so much buffeting with the draft sucking you in, you can't be at the brakes at a hundred percent and you're asking for trouble, you know, at that speed. Once you're, like I said, once you're over 340 Ks an hour, it's, if something goes wrong, I mean, there's just, you got no escape. Man, you know? I did a, a lap on the back with Jack at um, the bend, which mm-hmm. is the fastest track in Australia. I think we did like 286 or 287 down the main straight. Like two you up. got on the back with Jack, bro. I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> the, you know, the, the it's funny too. So there yeah, was, he had fun with that. I'm going to tell you, dude. So he literally <laughs> says to me, he goes, uh, "I've got some videos on my phone. Actually, I should show you after." But we get on, and so Ducati. It's when I was doing like the Ducati stuff, and they all know we're friends. And so yeah, yeah. they, I didn't know I was doing this ride until ten minutes before. It was the biggest stitch up. Yeah. And then I because you can't say no in front of everybody. I can't say no. Yeah, I got like literally all my boys are there. We're filming for the week. Like I, there's no way out of it. And uh, and so I I've got like a, I only have one kidney. I got some like blood pressure issues and stuff that like come as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And so they say, oh, you've got to go do this medical. And mm-hmm. uh, and I go in and I get my blood pressure done and but right before and it's like 185 over <laughs> hypertension <laughs> like crazy dude and the chick's like oh I can't let you ride mm-hmm. and I was like no it's fine like I've got this thing and it's like, not, yeah. it's like a, you know blah 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 I sort of talk my way into it yeah. but then I walk out and everyone's like just laughing at me like you're fucked like you're yeah. so fucked right now <laughs> I mean I, I like I said I respect Jack a lot but there's a couple people like him and Randy Mamola like I just not getting on the back with not happening dude so we we like put our put put the lids down and he he goes hey I am fully prepared to crash <laughs> as we rode out of pit lane, bro. He would say that too. Oh, and so we uh, we go out. <laughs> You're like having a conversation with Jesus at that point. Like, oh my god, straight up, dude. Like it was so gnarly. And so he did, and we went last. Mm-hmm. Why? Because all these other people had to get their ride, and if Jack crashed the bike, yeah. then they wouldn't be able to do the ride. So they did everyone else first. Everyone else didn't do the start straight, yeah, because they go pit lane, they come back, and they pit start, lane, yeah, and then yeah, they yeah, stop, yeah. right? We did three laps. Oh, so you were rocking, bro! <laughs> like we were doing two forty through one of the turns, yeah, and we went deep. It's on the, it's funny on the video. Like we just come past everyone, and we couldn't go any faster. Like the bike was wedged because obviously you can't tuck yeah. with like the two people, yeah, yeah. We overshoot turn one, like fully on like the dirt, like just almost on the white line on the mm-hmm. outside of this turn. And there was a time, there was like the, this triple apex like right-hander and my inside leg come off, hits the ground, rips my leg, like the bike, we're wheeling this thing, my legs, I was like, bro, this is <laughs> And he's laughing the whole time. Pissing himself, yeah, dude. Man. And then, but he, we, we had one more moment where like we fully lost the front and then he picked it back up and I was I've never in my life yeah. experienced and when you said like having a conversation with Jesus like, oh yeah I've got I you reckon, were halfway there bro I got <laughs> I reckon a, a lap and a bit in maybe it was like after the start straight I think probably by turn three on the second lap I was like whatever 
it's probably you're like yeah I'm out, whatever I, I don't care i'm holding on and dude i've had the gnarliest arm pump i've ever had in my life trying to fucking hang on to i wish that. they had a heart rate monitor on you and a Bro. blood pressure while you were on the bike i was tripping yeah. so i can't uh, that was that speed yeah and and it was a oh dude the gp like a one rider on a gp bike it's way faster but that's that. what i can't believe yeah. like i can't i I couldn't believe where we got to mm-hmm. in that. And I would say to people, like when I describe it, because it's phenomenal. Like if you, and especially with Jack f- sending it like yeah. that, you know, and the feeling was like falling off an office chair. Every, mm-hmm. You know, when you lean, you lean back and you just lose gravity. Yeah. Like it's, you're gone. That's what every single turn felt like and that's half of what you know because remember they're dragging elbows and dragging everything and with you he's probably barely dragging a knee unbelievable man yeah like i just couldn't and oh i would never do it i would never get on the back of a bike with somebody (laughs) just not gonna happen so many people have told me that wouldn't wouldn't, and and not even i mean definitely not jack because i mean i know jack a little bit he's cool but he's crazy and there's just i would never do that you know, and that's that goes back to the plane thing, or it's like even if someone's out on a jet ski, you want to ride on the back? Hell no, no, uh-uh, yeah, not doing I, it. I, I ain't having it. But the point is, is just what more a GP bike is getting than a what I experienced is I can I couldn't fathom what I experienced, mm-hmm. and I can't fathom there being 170 kilometers left to go on yeah. a, on a straightaway. What were like? What was the lap time y'all were probably doing? <sighs> Actually, I could look it up for you. Like two minutes or a minute. It'd be something around that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, a GP bike, they're probably 15 seconds a lap quicker than what y'all were doing. It's, I mean, it's a... It's just not like the... And it was the grip through... It wasn't the speed down the straights. Because yeah. I could see a person getting used to that speed. Yeah. And by the, no, you third, do. Yeah. by the third time we went down the straight, like that was kind of the chill part of yeah. the lap. But well, that's, just, when, that's when you're recovering. I mean, it, and when you're in that zone and that level, I mean, when you're doing... 205 or something 210 you're still glancing at pit board you're still making some adjustments with you know you get used to it i mean you're like and then you leave that weekend and you're driving the rental car and you look down and you're driving 100 and it's like oh shit i feel like i'm driving 50 you just get used to it you know and it's uh it's hard to describe but i i couldn't i can't ever see like i went and did i did the phillip island track day after mm-hmm. that that's experience. a good track fuck it was cool yeah. like i would going love. into turn one you're just looking at the ocean you know when it drops down it was dude um, the for me going under this like i started rolling off the throttle at the, the welcome to melbourne sign mm-hmm. <laughs> and you've got oh, so yeah. much more oh you're, yeah you're going way down there i remember it was raining in um it was like 2010 or 11 or something going into turn one and i mean you know i'm on a hot lap like rolling in the rain and, you know, I brake back two gears and then I tipped it in and it just, and you're, you know, going into turn one, you're still rolling like yeah. really fast. And I tipped it in and the bike just started, you know, the rear started coming around and I was like, oh shit. And I just, I just picked up the bike, you know, and kind of stood up with the slide. And I mean, I rode the damn white line all the way around. And that's one of those corners. Like if you crash and you hit that wet grass, oh, you're, you're going to the ocean. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're going back across the track and you're yeah. going to keep going. So yeah. it was scary as, uh, scary as hell going doing that. But I just, I, I just don't know. The thing that I really took away was how do you find that line? Like to, for me to feel what the first time we really dipped into a turn and the, 
the way the aggressiveness from breaking and it's just the bike gets dumped like yeah. you're dumping that thing as hard as you and it's like how do you find that the first time how is that a thing that you know is possible it just and it takes a lot a lot of years but you know i mean it's in the same time you know it is that it's when you get to that level you know you have so much feeling with the bike and because you're riding it on the edge or you feel that edge all the time so you can feel it you know going into a turn you know you're pushing the front you pick up the throttle the rear kind of just barely steps out you can kind of manipulate the bike a little bit through the turn and and you're just on that that line you know of traction and the faster you're going i mean obviously you want to be on a good bike and stuff but that's all the feel right there because you're just you're feeling all the little micro slides because you're just on that absolute limit so when you're there i mean you have a lot of feeling you know mm-hmm. and you kind of um you know where you're at but it's um takes a lot of time and again like now if i go ride right now I'm not slow by any means, but I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a pace that there isn't much feeling because mm. I'm not sliding the bike at all kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, some a little yeah. bit, but you know what I mean? I'm not yeah. like getting the front to push and all that kind of stuff. And, and you kind of have less feel at that speed. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's just something that you're spending. Like I tell people, I mean, it's, it's, that's our office. You're doing it every day, you know, kind of, you know, or that's what you're doing. It's repetitive and, um, you can get back to that level, you know, really quick. But then when you, you know, you back out of it for years, like I have, you, you know, you realize that just how locked in, you know, in those years, in that moment you are, you know, with the bike and stuff. I mean, it just, and it takes a lot of time to get there. What was the best bike you ever rode? Well, I mean, that's, you know, the GP bikes obviously were probably the quickest. Um, but the one you had the most feeling with. Probably my 2007 and 8 Superbike, my Suzuki. That was Suzuki, yeah. Yeah, and then went to Yamaha in 09. Um, the bike, obviously, a lot of people know now. At the time, they were like, oh, it's the bike. And I was like, well, y'all said that about the Suzuki, you know? And, and, and it really wasn't, you know? It had a great front end. I could feel everything on it. So I could ride around a lot of problems too with the rear end because I just I knew where the front was. I mm. was I was a hard breaker, so I could. So you were leaning on that front, and yeah. if you had front, you could kind of yeah. Yeah, but like if I had my Suzuki for '09, or if I had that Ducati, like we would have done better. You know, I mean, I'm not. I don't Yamaha. That was one of my favorite bikes just because the feeling I had on it with the front end. But when you look at, you know, the traction, the side grip that it had. Um, the wheelbase we had to run in it, it wheelied a lot. It did stoppies into the corners a lot because it was really short because we were, you know, going for a lot of mm. grip. And, um, you know, it was just, uh, it was a hard bike to ride, you know, and a lot of people that rode it, they were just kind of like, wow, you know, it's this thing's heavy left to right because it had a cross-plane crankshaft, um, just all the centrifugal force, it was heavier, you know, and, and I liked it. I mean, I liked it a lot, but probably, you know, my 2007, 2008 Superbike. Yeah. And when you're on that bike on its best day, are you just fully like in the zone is like the term that people use. But like, I I just, from being and doing that lap with Jack and just, I could just imagine when that felt normal 
how incredible of a feeling oh, yeah. that must be. Because like it was incredible to me, but I was shitting my pants the yeah. entire time. But like I said, when I kind of let go of that and just was like, well, I'm on here now. If we crash, we crash. I got two, two more laps like I'm mm. just going to enjoy this thing. And when I did let go, fuck, what a crap. Yeah. Like, it was incredible. So, I imagine when you're the dude doing the riding, you've got that feeling. Yeah. Everything's working. That just must feel amazing. Yeah, 2005 was my first year on Superbike. And I beat Matt one time because his bike broke. And that was my first Superbike win. But besides that, I was pretty much second most of the races, you know, kind of 10 seconds back. Um, usually had second pretty comfortable. Sometimes I was fighting for third, but pretty much second place. It was like you two. Yeah. And I had a good feeling with the bike, but it wasn't just super great, but I definitely, you know, things were good on it. Um, but I didn't have the feeling that, you know, I felt like I said, I could run mat space. And then we got, we changed the fork specs or got a different new set of forks, uh, in the off season. I went out on them and basically got straight down to the lap record. And I came in and I was like, if I have this feeling with the bike at nine out of 10 tracks, we can win the championship. I mean, I, I felt it. It like clicked. I was able to, because also like if you're riding a super bike and you're riding it, you're more of a, a mid-level guy and you get on a super bike and it's set up the way that we set our bikes up, you're not going to be fast on it. Mm -mm. You're not going to like it. It's not going to turn good. It's going to be stiff as hell. Um, but people think that they're going to get on it and just go faster. It's like, no, you have to push those things to make them work. And that fork change allowed me to do that. And then we we won that title in 06. And then 07, um, same thing. I mean, I just, the feel I had with those bikes. And me and Matt at that time, I went, we did a, a really good job developing the bike. A, a really good job. He had kind of been doing it a couple years before me. And then I came into the team when I was 18 um, was riding Formula Extreme, so I was kind of helping with some of the development. And then in 06 and 07 and 08, you know, it was kind of looked at as the two-horse show, you know, for a little bit. I mean, I think in 2007 and 08, we I think we won every race between me or him. But, you know, and, and as much as the rivalry was and some dislike at that time and just the cutthroat, you know, part of racing, when it would come to testing or little kind of conversations, we were making the bike better. Mm. you know and we were not helping each other but we were pushing each other we were pushing each other but then we were also like hey what this what do you feel on this part it was shit wasn't it or you know this and we were we were getting that bike better and better and then you know everybody was like oh they're winning because it's the suzuki's and and all that mm. kind of stuff and then again we went over to 09 and that's when we didn't know what the tracks didn't know the bikes and we were you know there and it was like guys we worked our ass off yeah you know i mean we really did me and him testing practices it was like if you were in a practice i would see some of the other factory guys you know they're on their cool off lap or they're going to come into the pits they come out of the corner do a wheelie wave into the crowd or whatever where our cool off laps were a second off the pace because we were getting back to the pits trying to make a change because we only had a 45 minute session and that's how you know it was almost like i would see you know again some factory racer kind of look back see me coming and you could tell that they were like, okay, get out, we'll get out of the way. Yeah, you he's know? working still. Yeah, because it was just I didn't mess around like that. If somebody wanted to follow me, kind of like Marquez does, I was like, all right, hold on. Yeah, you yeah. know. And I just kind of went about the business like that. And that's where you know, for the re for the relationship we had, the rivalry we had, we worked really good together on making that bike. I mean, it was it was awesome. It was just so refined, you know. 
Do you think that that rivalry with Matt pushed you to be a better rider? A hundred percent. Yeah. No, there's no doubt. I mean, you know, I came into the team and he was Matt. He had won everything, you know, and he had got beat by Nicky kind of one year, but that was when he was on a 750. Nick was on RC 51. There was a pretty big gap in that, but nobody had ever beat him on the same motorcycle. Mm. It hadn't been done. And he had already won six titles, you know. So when I came in, he already he knew I was, you know, being groomed to be the next one and all the stuff. So it, it started from the moment I came into the team. When I was 18, just kind of remarks. And if you know Matt, you know how it was. So it just it started like that. I think and that's then, a bit of Aussie culture. Yeah, I mean, could be. Um, and he, uh, you know, it was a different setup. I had my family kind of support me. I was a kid. I was this. And he was the one from Australia. Didn't have really shit behind him. Mm-hmm. And he was looking at it like he had a chip on his shoulder, you yeah. know, for sure. And I get it, you know. But um, but the rivalry, yes. I mean, when it came to training and it came to pushing myself in every other way, there's no doubt, you know, that racing him, you know, it prepared me going over for 09. Because, mm-hmm. like, when I went over for 2009, people are like, how are you, you know, how's it going to be? And I was like, well, <laughs> I'm not racing Matt, so it's got to be easier. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah. And that's the way I looked at it. And he was a, he was a great rider. I mean, he's one of the – the only rider, you know, to when I was on a superbike and I felt like I was on, you know, he rode away from me a couple, not by much, but he was faster. That was the couple days you go back to the 18 wheeler and you're like, shit, mm-hmm. you know, I rode, I mean, I, I didn't make mistakes. I felt good on the bike. I rode good and he, he, he rode away from me, you know, and we, I did that to him too. Mm-hmm. And I know he had, he'd never felt that from the same bike and, it was, uh, you know, it was, and I had, you know, and at that point too, it was usually I hadn't been beat by my teammate or, you know, wasn't, I didn't have a faster teammate. And so seeing his level and just catching it and, and seeing how he went about testing and how just scientific and laps and just seriousness and all that stuff that made me to lock into that because the rivalry had gotten to the point where mm. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to beat his ass Mm -hmm. you know on the track it's just i'm gonna do whatever it takes and you know he's you know i always always say too that maybe one of the championships would have went to him you know if he wouldn't have been that person because he put me in a place where it was like Mm. you know because 2007 we we go to the last race and it was um the point situation was if i got if he got pole position and got the extra point he could finish second in the race and win Mm. the title and then if I got the pull point, it didn't even – because if you led the most laps, you got a point. So if I got the pull position, it didn't matter. He could lead the most laps, but if I won the race, I won the title. So I, I got the pull position, and I put it in place where it was a winner-take-all at the end of 2007 at Laguna. And uh, we get going. And that was one of the one races because we had some clutch issues where a lot of the races during the year – he would get away earlier. I got away earlier, and then you just couldn't. You know, once there's three and a half second gap to On what we were doing, you're not catching at that level. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we got rolling, and we're right. We're right. You know, I'm on his ass. And Laguna was a track that I kind of had his number a little bit more than he did on mine. And Atlanta and Virginia, he kind of was the same way. And then everywhere else, we were pretty even. Um, and I was just, I was right on him and we were rolling and the pace that he was setting was fast. I mean, it was faster than he had ever gone there. 
and he was riding good. Just and, hungry, eh? Yeah, and, and it, again, he I was point one point two behind him the entire time. He could hear my bike. And then I made a little bit of a mistake, and he got like half a second on me. And then it went 0. 0.75, 0. 0.9, and it got to a second, almost 1.1. 1. 1. And it was kind of the only time in my career where I was like, we've raced all these races, you know, all year long, and it comes down to this. I was like, I'm not going to finish second. I'm either going to win it or I'm going to crash. And, and you didn't have to win to win the title. No, I did. It was whoever, oh, whoever oh, won the race. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I just I was going down the front straightaway, and I remember I told myself that, and I was like, I've got to go, you know. And I and just for whatever reason, I got back into a zone, and I started. I was like four tenths a lap quicker. So you know, I started. It was one of those things where he got to a second. And I think he was almost realizing like he broke me. Because right when you get to that second 1.2, that rubber band pops. You know, and the mm. guy in second's like, okay, I don't, I just I ain't got it. You know, It's so. not like a outbreak, run it in kind of scenario. Yeah. It's like he, you just, you have to then catch up on lap times. Like yeah. you can't. Because he's got the gap where he doesn't have to protect anything. Yeah. Yeah. So he's just ultimate fast lap times. Yeah. And at that point. So, you know, I got rolling. I think, you know, I knocked like four tenths a lap off of what I was doing. And it kind of reversed on him because it, you know, he, he saw that gap build and then it went 0. 0.6, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.0. And I was there. So he was like, I knew in his head, he was like, shit, you know, he's, he's coming and passed him up into the corkscrew, put together two really, really good laps and, you know, got a couple seconds on him and then ended up, you know, the band popped, like we say, and kind of got it up to like three and a half, four seconds and then just, just chilled, you know, but no, I mean, racing, you know, I always say it was it was hard racing. It was tough. Um, there was a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of stuff that went on, you know, within the team. Um, but in the same time, it was it was a good rivalry, and it did put me in a better position, you know, for a lot of my career um, because it just it taught me the, you know, the small things matter, you know, the testing, mm. all that. Because I didn't – I wasn't always, like, the biggest tester. I loved riding, but – you know, I, it just made me get analytical about everything and just pay attention to, to everything, you know, about the bike and the team situation, structuring it with how many tires we would have in this practice to this qualifying and just looking at the whole picture. So, yeah, it was, it was big. And what about the personal rivalry? Oh, it was huge. Yeah, at that time. Like in terms of the relationship and the like personally how you felt towards him, how he felt towards you? You know – it was it was bad, you know, if you were from the outside looking in, you know, the way that it looked. But I also knew, you know, in the times that me and him were kind of completely alone, like if we had to jump in a limo together to go to an autograph signing or something like that, he wasn't always that person, you know. Mm. So I, I knew it, but I also knew that he, you know, he's not afraid that when it comes to a press conference or something, like I had an appendix taken out, emergency appendix <laughs> surgery, and I raced nine days after and finished second those weekends, and I even got pole position. I got the point for it. But, you know, we're in the press conference, and he's like, and, yeah, he's he's complaining. His, his stomach hurts and, you know, something. He's like, maybe maybe I need to do that so I can get pole. I'm like, fucker, I just – I have a bacterial infection from a seeping appendix. They just removed it, and it ain't – but that's the – you know, he would do all that stuff. So, you know, he, he wasn't always right either, but it made, it made for a great ride since there was – basically both of us were winning the race it wasn't really nobody else was kind of in the race at that point um 
it made it where it was interesting because there was that such a rivalry for sure. Um, but rivalries make sport. Oh yeah. Well, even like I mean, my, it. my crew chief, you know, he's known as kind of do not mess with him, you mm-hmm. know? And so the crew chief and Matt's crew chief, and it was just, you know, I mean like houseworth, I've seen him, you know, get mad at somebody at a bar, break a beer bottle, grab the glass and eat it. Jesus. My crew chief. And his, his nickname's House. His last name's Houseworth. He's a big dude. Yeah. So that was always what my comfort was, is I was like, nobody's going to mess with me. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah. there, there was one time I kind of ran into somebody, or they got in my way in qualifying, and and it was my my mistake. I mean, I came up, I kind of hit them, and didn't knock them down, but knocked them offline a little bit. And, uh, and I came in, I was like, Tom, might have somebody coming over pretty soon that's pissed off. And right then, a dude kind of chopped my front in the pits and stopped right there and started kind of point my finger. Tom grabbed him off his bike and picked him up and took him and set him on the other side of pit wall. And he was like, do not do this right now. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> my G. Yeah, my God. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I heard back, like, I can't remember when it was, but. Someone was saying, or it's just like kind of one of those rumors that goes around Australia that that Matt pretty much sent Suzuki broke for those years. What's that? That Matt pretty much sent Suzuki broke those years because of like just how much money that they were paying out in bonuses. Yeah, I think we, I think both of you probably. And and to be to be fair too, you know, like Aaron Yates and Tommy Hayden, they were on the team, Mm. and they were, you know, they were getting paid, you know, not like me and Matt, but when you put them all three together. It was kind of like, you know, I know Matt was low two millions, you know, for a couple of years. And I know I was kind of in the same way for a couple of years. And then you have someone like a Tommy Hayden that's probably getting, you know, 800 grand or 600 grand, something like that. It's a lot of money, you know. And then obviously when the economy, we were, you know, getting that 06, 07, and 08 kind of years. And then the economy hit, you know, and it just it changed everything. But, yeah, we were – we were lucky. I mean, but it, you know, it may, it was, I was able to build a really good team atmosphere with me because, you know, the bonus winnings and stuff like that. I remember, you know, when we got to the championship, um, the year that we won the 070, um, yeah, 07 double titles, super stock and super bike. You know, we went, and I would always kind of bonus the guys, yeah. you know, um, after the races, but there was, you know, we showed up to, um, to the banquet. You know, and I think I gave each member, you know, a check for 25 grand and I gave my crew chief a check for like 75 grand. So, I mean, I'd over the year, I'd paid a couple hundred grand, you know, just in, in, um, you know, the team and, and all the stuff because the stuff they do, I mean, they're, they're putting in so much That's more insane, work than man. what I'm doing, but you know, it's, um, it's, yeah. So it just, it, it, our whole team vibe was great. I mean, those were those were my favorite years of racing, even with the rivalry and even the way it was hectic. I mean, I enjoyed those years, you know, the most. Yeah, because I'm sure that you could, uh, you can kind of like appreciate what a rivalry does for you. Yeah. You know, like when you, you have guys like you think about, I don't know, like a Casey and a Valentino, like do you mm. get that Casey Stoner without that Valentino? Yeah. You know, do you get this Ben Spees without that Matt Mulata? Yeah. You know, and it's like... No, it's, I mean, it, it definitely, you know, made me, you know, be a little bit more ruthless in that way and just kind of doing everything you can do to win. And sometimes, you know, you get mad and you ride out of anger kind of thing with whatever's going on. But there's no doubt, you know, again, the fans liked it. Um, it was good for racing. 
And it's always good to have a rivalry. And that's that's going back to MotoGP when you brought up that question of how it, how it is now. And that's the one thing I do think it lacks mm. a little bit. You know, and I'm not not because I'm I'm friends with a couple of the guys and I respect all those dudes. I mean, they're they're the best in the world and you know, they're awesome, but in the same time, you know, turn one on the checkered flag lap, sometimes you'll see like the top four pull over and they're like giving each other hugs and stuff and like and I just think, you know, at that level it's so I don't know how to describe it, but all the guys are kind of like that A personality, like they're yeah, the alphas yeah, yeah, type yeah, deal. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you, I don't want guys out there hating each other, but it's it's good to have that yeah. battle, you know, and, and a little bit, you know, not you know not going against each other, but just a little bit more aggressiveness, you yeah. know, than sometimes. But the guy, if the guys get along too, that's great. Because back when I was in MotoGP, there was a lot more, you know, mm. people were in their lanes and they didn't really – and now it's a lot different, which which I always liked. And I was the type that I could have been great friends with people, and I can race them hard. You know, that's not going to change how it is. But, you know, that's that's the only thing I've noticed. And I know other people have kind of said yeah, it. I, yeah. Um, and, again, I'm not, not hating on them because, dude, the dudes that are finished on the podium, I'm, I'm fans of them. Yeah. But I feel like it's lacking, you know, a couple rivalries, different yeah. things that could be. But No, nah, man, I completely agree. Like when um, – you know, Jack's the only dude that'll oh, he's, talk a bit of shit these days. Him like, and him and Crutchlow, you know, they don't care. They're going to pretty much say it how it is. Yeah, but, I mean, there's just no... And I know Jack likes all those dudes. I yeah. know Jack's friends with all oh, of yeah, them. Yeah. And, but I think it's kind of like... It's such a weird little club now, you know? Like, yeah. they're all living in Andorra. They're all cycling past each other. There's yeah. only a few cafes. Like, well, you see them like they go in... super moto train and they're all together. Yeah. You know? And again, that's, I mean, that's... It's cool. Yeah, yeah. But when you get to the racetrack, it's kind of like... I just always kind of felt or looked at it like, you know, and, and when you're at the top of that series and you're top of the, you know, all that the stuff, you, it's like you're, you're a gladiator. Like, y'all are going to do battle. You know, without when you think about how fast it is and how intense racing is, that's the way I looked at it, you know. Um, and I think from like a business perspective, too, um, I mean, they're all getting paid a bunch of money, so yeah. it's like, do they really give a fuck? But you know, I look at like Hayden Deegan, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, but he's got that killer, he's a dog, yeah, like he is a little fucking dog, yeah. And you know, we just put out a podcast with them yesterday, and he's talking about. He's like, man, I love talking shit. He's like, I, res- he, I respect but he, he you guys. Do, he does it in a way that, like, you can see that he's got that, I wouldn't call it arrogance, but he's got that. Um, he's eight, He's the alpha dog. He you is. Know? And, and, you know, he's young, and he's got all this following now with what he's been doing, rightly so. Um, you know, so the way he's handling it, too. I mean, you know, a couple times, some interviews, people be like, oh, that's a little too much. I think he's handling it, you know, in a really good way. And he's, you know, he's having to obviously mature fast because of where he's at in the spotlight. But his type of personality, how he goes about racing, that's what I like to see out of a racer. You know, and you want to, it's not that you want to be cocky about it and you want to be a clean rider, but it's like, it's like Cooper Webb. Yeah, same. Yeah. If if you pass him, he's coming back. He yeah. might not be able to sustain the pace. You might get him back, but he's not settling. Mm-hmm. ever i mean you can see that with cooper as soon as he gets past dude is looking the next corner or the corner after that rhythm so he's trying to get back by he's a racer and that's how hayden is that's what i see you know in him and i'm not saying the other guys like chase because they're wicked fast yeah. but 
that you see a little bit more dog in Hayden. You know, it's like I'm I'm coming. <laughs> and I think I got the vibe from talking to him that he understands like the game theory that yeah. you know you can win. Like I said, you can win races by the way that you walk to the truck. You can yeah. win races by the way that you say hello. You can call your teammate buddy. Yeah. You know, like there's little like, hey, buddy, like mm-hmm. that's condescending as shit. To yeah. a dude, you know what I mean? So it's like you can play those little yeah. games. Oh, he's already set the stage where For sure. when he rolls up to the start line and people look over, it's kind of like, all right, we know what we're getting with him. Yeah. You know, which is everything. Yeah. And that's what I like to see in a racer. I mean, because you only, dude, you only get to do it one time. You know, you can't go back in the window. In the grand scheme of things, in motocross, you know, it's from like, 16 17 to you know they're starting to get out of their prime when they're 30 Mm. you know i mean they can you can still do it you know obviously but you're in your prime at like the the 22 to 26 mark kind of thing and um it goes by quick and you ain't gonna do it again yeah you know so it's like i was just always the type like put everything into it and the way hayden's doing it you know i just i respect it you know he's he's doing a good job yeah and i think i think the same with the with the moto gp stuff like do i really want to see everybody being hugging and friends mm-hmm. and like a little boys club you know like you had sete juvenile and valentino like dude Rossi, well, and, and Rossi, max and valley biagi and valley yeah, like those yeah. were it made it that interesting. made the sport though yeah. like that's the stuff that the foundation of kevin of, kevin swans wayne rainey yeah that, that american rivalry over there so Again, you don't want it to get too much, but I think it's very good for the sport. The fans like it. Um, yeah, it's it's good. Yeah, I, I hope um, I hope you know having a guy like Pedro Acosta come in, or you know, it's just like a little bit of fresh blood, kind of like yeah. really fires everybody up. You know, I think, and he's a bit of a dog too. I mean, he's like just when you see him ride and what he's accomplished already. I mean, he's. Like I said, I think he's got that killer instinct when it comes to, to winning. Yeah. Yeah, and it'd be cool to see, you know, like Jakey Dixon. Like, yeah. he's obviously, like, he's a cool motherfucker, too. Yeah. Like, he's got a lot. I don't know that everyone agrees with his style. Like, he's pretty, yeah. you know, he takes it to He the wears place. his heart on his sleeve, you know. But in the I same time, I, I did that a little bit. Casey was that type, too. And it makes you, you know, sometimes dig deeper, right? You know, but in the same time, sometimes it comes across in that way but that's just but i think you just need to walk the line between um between yeah like sport and entertainment yeah you know like there's a very there's a pretty big gray area and well, like I think, valentino was really good about that oh, i think man. like as in i think there's a lot of races in the past that he could have won by a bigger margin but he understood the show you know, and that's the that's a lot of respect for him because that's high level. Yeah, but because I really think I mean I'm I'm positive about that. You know, back in it's hard to say you know the exact years, but early two thousands to kind of two thousand, basically when Casey and Jorge arrived, that's when it changed. Yeah, you know, before that it was I think, all hands on deck then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I think before then, you know, he had he could play a little bit. You know, and he, he understood, and he's always understood the show, you know, and everything that goes with it, his colors, everything, you know. So that was a that was a big thing. Yeah. So you, 2013, you have like a pretty gnarly shoulder injury. You've had some just crazy injuries. Yeah, I mean, my shoulder, this thing oh, pops in and out pretty much. So it's just still just done. 
Yeah. Yeah. But you retire, basically, like there's a kind of famous incident where you're just wedged and your shoulder comes out, you can't roll off the throttle, and then you're just like, sorry, yes. guys, I can't. So at Magello, um, I was, there's a chicane that goes to the last turn, and um, I had been on and off the bike already that year because my shoulder was obviously messed up. I tried to come back, I think, I think that was my second time coming back because I came back for the first, like, race was having big issues with it. I mean, I was honestly like 60%, you know, in, in, in that year, without a doubt. Tried to do Qatar. You know, they're sitting there giving me shots every day to try to numb it. And I'm, I've, my shoulder's just black from all the shots and just trying to get through it. And then I go back home and I don't go to the next couple races doing, um, you know, doing more rehab. And then I go back to Magello and I'm coming out of a turn and I'm just, I have a slide, you know, kind of going out to the paint. And I hit the paint where it's got more traction and the thing kind of twisted up in a couple knots, but nothing that I would say, it was not a big deal, but it pulled my shoulder out and I was kind of just hung wide open throttle hand and you've got a short straight to the last turn. And I went in, you know, I passed my brake marker by 50 meters. And at that level, when you miss a brake marker by that much, you're in way high, yeah, you're in you know, grass. you're going off the track. Yeah. Luckily I, I got through the gravel trap, didn't hit the wall, got it turned came into the pits and I mean it that scared the shit out of me because I that didn't have any control of a bike that's got 275 horsepower you know and um the bigger thing that we were looking at was that if that would have been the first lap of a race I'd have taken out a few people you know and it would have been bad bad so I pulled off the bike again went home was doing rehab again and then I tried to go back and ride at Indy and I was still, when I was riding the bike, I was in pain. I wasn't able to ride it like I wanted to, um, just not comfortable. And coming out of pit lane, the way the Yamaha used to work is when the pit lane limiter was on and you turned it off, the electronics were fully running. TC, wheelie control, everything. With the Ducati, <clears throat> when you take it, when you had to go to second gear for it to turn on. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. In the way pit lane was at Indy, the first three turns were all first gear. So when I came out, you know, out of the deal, it was like midway through the session, went back out. And again, it was my fault because I hadn't been on that bike that much. I really hadn't ridden it, but just a test and partially two weekends kind of thing. So, you know, I go there and I come out of, you know, turn three and I go to get on the throttle and the thing was like full power, no electronics. And it, you know, just spit me. And it separated this shoulder. Um, it was a grade five separation of this one. My right one, I've had four separations and three were grade five. And I was already having issues with it again. So, you know, when that happened with Indy, with all the stuff I was going through, there was one surgery I could have possibly done to get it better, but there was a, a good chance too that it would be painful and have some issues with it. Um, so when I left Indy, I just had double shoulder surgery had at the same time, you know, and I just, I said, I'm, I said, I'm out, you know, there was just, it was one of those things. Like I needed a lot of time off because my shoulder started feeling better, but it, I mean, I still have huge issues with it, but it started feeling better, you know, a couple years later. And it was just, it was an injury that took, you know, a long time to heal in a good place, but it's not, you know, I would say that it's 75, 80% normal. You know, I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm weak in that side. I mean, you can see like I have some muscle atrophy on that yeah, side and, yeah. and it's, uh, and it's hella loose, you know? So it's just, you know, it sucks that, you know, in the last, 
in the last kind of year because the season before I had some just bad luck stuff with Yamaha. I mean, the bike broke a lot, um, had some issues with it. Wasn't a great year. And then, you know, went to Ducati. And then, like I said, I got hurt at the end of 2012 and I had the huge surgery done where they, you know, they're cutting bones and I had cadaver tendons put Mm. in and a bunch of stuff. And it just, I needed a lot more time, you know, and it just, I tried to rush it back and it just, it was not a good thing. And, um, just put me in that place, you know, and it was, uh, wasn't easy to walk away, but it, it was just like, man, I've got so much stuff stacked against me right now. And, um, and that was it. But I just, you know, I tell people I can't, I was upset for a while, you know, there's no doubt when you're a racer and you're just, you know, wanting to do that and it's kind of taken away from you, it's not easy, you know, but we had so much, you know, success in the beginning and, and a lot of my career. I mean, I can't be upset about, it. I wanted to race a couple more years for sure, but a lot worse could, can happen, you mm. know? So it's, it is what it is. Yeah. I think so many dudes struggle when they retire just on their own accord, you know, let alone to have it basically just ripped out of your hands, literally. Well, me and, and me and Casey talked about this and, and talk, I talk about it with, you know, a few riders too, is, is I was even talking to my dad about it. Um, cause we were watching some racing and it just got brought up and, you don't think about it. And this is why I said you do it's every day. It's normal for you, but you don't really think about it, but you know, your whole, a lot of your life, you know, up until you retire, you're riding at an edge and at a level that again, you're going 150 mile an hour through a turn. You're kind of losing the front, you're sliding the rear, you're touching people and it's all normal then, but it's not normal for a brain to be at that level for that long of doing stuff. You know, I don't think so. It's not, it's not normal, you know? So what it does to you and all the stuff, who knows, but when you retire and and the lights go out, as I kind of say, like the, you're not getting the green light anymore. It's uh, you just realize that, you know, you're a bit different, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's not that you're not more special than anybody, but you're a bit different because you've been doing this in a certain way for so long. That is such an extreme thing. You know, it's like, yeah, some people, you know, and I, and I had, I didn't have any like big troubles, but it wasn't easy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you talk with Casey, you talk with people that are kind of at that level or up at the, you know, where they're just, they're the analytical person or they were good at it, but they were so into it when it stops. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a big difference. It's just kind of like, wow, you start looking around and it's like, this is an adjustment. You yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think especially in Casey's case, like, did you did you hear the podcast with him? A little bit. Well, he spoke a lot about like the anxiety and stuff that he oh, had yeah. that no one really yeah. even knew about. But yeah, we, yeah, yeah. You think about, um, so dude, they, this Garmin, like, I wear I wear this pretty much all the time for mm-hmm. the last few years, and um, it, which sucks because I've got other watches that I fucking love. Yeah, <laughs> but I just don't. I'm like, oh, I can't can't let go. I'm like, do I make this thing an ankle monitor or something? But um. <laughs> But when you learn, like, the, the stress reading on this is crazy. Like, you would have worn them for, like, with training and stuff, I'm yeah. sure, back in the day. But when you start to see stress, yeah, like, the physical stress on your body, and that's, like, the fight or flight response that you're in, right? Yeah. You're just sitting at a desk, just, and you're redlining. Mm-hmm. You know, you're at, like, 80, 95 stress. And that that's, like, anxiety. And it's, like, your body's kind of, for whatever reason, like, the, whatever you're thinking about or whatever you've got going on. Yeah. Like, you're sitting still, but you're in that kind of fight or flight response. But then 
you think and and when you say so you, you get this watch and then you start noticing it you're like shit i need to start you know i need to really be mindful of this mm-hmm. and then over time like i've been able to drop it down like crazy just my normal state now i feel like mm-hmm. by knowing that you've got way more control over it right yeah so then you think about what you did for your whole life yeah. and the 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 stress on your it, nervous, seem, it seems your normal to system. you yeah but it's not it's not no uh-uh. the 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 level that your nervous system is operating at yeah. and the flight or fl- uh, fight response the yeah. the fear response the anxiety the pr- like dude so you're this, just bottoming yourself out this is a is a good way to look at it too is you know when it's raining and you're doing a rain race physically it's really easy you yeah, because you're going slow. You can't ride. Yeah. I mean, you're only riding what you can do in, in the grip level. So when you're in that type of shape and you're riding that much, you know, through the year, physically it's just nothing, you know, to do a, to do a wet race. But when you do a wet race and you're at dinner Sunday night, you're mentally fried. fried. Yeah. And your body's fine, but it's like it shows how much focus – you're doing for that 40 minutes. I know you do like a 20 minute practice session in the morning, but the race is say 42 minutes, but you are so focused. It's just, it was crazy to see how that would work. Like I said, you'd just be Sunday night, just like emotionally, mentally, you were way more drawn down than if the race was in the dry and you weren't thinking like that. You were just kind of, everything was going. So it's, there's two different ways to look at it, but that was that always surprised me. And a lot of people, they say the same thing. If they're at the top level, I mean, riding in a real hard rain race, mentally, it just, you're cooked. Yeah. I and mean, you're done. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so what helped through retirement? You know, like what, what was the stuff that kind of, I guess, took that edge off it, off the, the sting out of it in a sense? Is it just time? Like you just, just kind time. of slowly adjust to... Yeah. Because you sort of like... It's not the same as like someone that's been in the services, yeah. but like it sort of is in a sense. And and I think it's also similar in the sense that um, relatability, like who can you relate to? Casey, yeah. Matt, not, you know, like not there's not of, many humans that yeah. can know and experience the things that you have in your life. And, again, and when you talk about it, you're always trying to like, it's not. It's not that like anybody's any more special than somebody. Or that it was hard and bad and poor me, but it's like you just the the relatability to a normal person is not the same. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's exactly what it is. And I mean, like I said, for first couple years, you're trying to figure out things. You know, luckily, have a great wife, and we had kids, and you know, through that, you know, and just you know, I've got horses out on my land, and being around horses and stuff like that always helps people that kind of, you know, are going through that type of stuff. I mean, it's pretty much proven, you know, and those kinds of things, you know, helped out, but also just realizing it and knowing it and kind of being able to step back Mm. and be like, okay, that was, you know, I know it did these things and it kind of, you suffer from it a little bit in this way or that way. And you just kind of learn to deal with it, but it's, it's also, it's not easy, you know, cause it's just, you're wired, you know, that way yeah and then last year you make it into the ama hall of fame Mm -hmm. how does that like does that give i guess like a bit of a bookend to a a career in a sense where you can like it really closes the chapter and you're just like man like i really did this yeah i mean it's you know you know just like when they you know kind of making the press releases of the new ducati team with the ray halls and 
all that stuff and you kind of you know they introduce you as you know the five-time ama champ moto gp champion gp winner hall of fame whatever and then you realize it's like damn you know i i did do something because i i never i always looked at someone like bayless or troy course or, or noriyuki haga the guy that i battled with the title for they were i was fans of them i never thought like i was on their level mm. but when i look back at like their fans like i i understand but i just i never i never felt like that and i never put myself like that's where i am you know relatable to to things so um so yeah no i mean it's 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 cool and you with the way i am i mean i just i was living so much kind of in the moment tunnel vision that it wasn't i wouldn't say i didn't enjoy you know the accolades and stuff like that but you're always looking the next day mm-hmm. and, and the next year and planning and and going about it so that's the one thing in the last kind of five years i've been able to reflect more on the past and you know even some of the days where people are like oh are you even enjoying living in lake como and doing all this stuff life experiences it was great and and you do look back and it makes you happy and all that kind of stuff but when at least for me you know when i was in that zone and and just doing that stuff that's how i had to be and Mm -hmm. again if if for whatever reason if i was able to go back to racing i probably would be like that again Mm. you know just because it's like if i'm going into something and it's it's kind of war in that way like you're racing people whatever i've got to go to that level where it puts me in the best place to win or be competitive and and uh not not that being nice doesn't make it work but it's just you've gotta i gotta simplify things a lot you know and just be super dedicated to it some some do that some are able to like i said balance it more and you know be the fan person or the you know the ambassador to racing and and we have to have those people but it's not for everybody either man it's not for most people Hmm. you know like you can think about it's one thing i always say and I even said it to Hayden on the podcast is like, Hey, like people say that they want to be this guy, like the guy that but you're when saying, the, but when you're winning and then, you know, everybody's looking at you too, like you got to keep winning or you got to keep this up. I mean, it's a ton of pressure, you know, and you, and I don't, I never really looked at it so much like that, but you just, you feel it, you know, yeah. cause if you're winning kind of consistently or, you know, um, all that stuff, you, that's, that's what you have to be doing, you know? So if you're not, you know, it's just, it's, it's tough. And you just know that, you know, you've got a lot of fans behind you and they're kind of expecting that. So, I mean, that, that type of pressure builds where I think that some people, some people don't understand it. that mm-hmm. haven't been in that position. Even, even a lot of racers that were pretty good at it. Like if they're not, yeah, they never had that. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not, I mean, again, there's many other people that did it and I'm not talking crap about no, them, no, but no, it's no, just, yeah. if you're at that level, there's different, you know, people expect different things. People, you know, expect you to be something when it's like, Hey, I'm trying the hardest I can just to get this part done. I don't have time for that stuff right now, you know? So that's just, that's how I was with it. Well, I think too, like sometimes, um, you, like when you want to be the guy, like a Rossi or like a, a Deegan type character or like a, it's really hard to it's like you you there's a caricature of yourself mm-hmm. that you're playing right and I'm like i even feel it with this like i do my absolute best like you i mean we've talked in and out of this like i'm yeah. trying to be myself but yeah, yeah. there's a you're presenting a face to the world you know mm-hmm. like people have seen this version of me for mm-hmm. like hundreds of shows now you know yeah. and you end up 
being this person in this role and then you get known in public and then you go to a supercross race and then you're this guy to those people that know you as and if you don't like the further away that character is from your actual personality or how you act in real life like i think that it's very hard for people to find a line that they can walk and like a guy like valley did it amazing no i mean that's yeah no, and I, I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't walk that line yeah, that people, well. Yeah, yeah, that's, and, a, that's and a big I, and, project. And I always, my whole thing was just, man, I, I was like, I wish some of the people that are criticizing, they just could open, it's kind of like the extrovert to introvert thing. It's yeah. like, hey, I get that you're an extrovert, and that's great, but it's not me. Yeah. But I think the extroverts, they always have a hard time looking at introverts, and they're like, why are you like that? Yeah. I mean, people are different, you know, and trust me, would... I rather have been an extrovert that raced motorcycles. Yeah, it would have been a lot easier. Yeah. Would have been, you know, you would have got what you wanted and all the stuff, but that's not me. But then sometimes people go against that because they feel like you should be certain things. And it's like, you know, not everybody wants the fame. Like yeah. a lot of people, they just want to win against the racers. And that's what the first thing's about. It's the race, it's not anything else. And, People are just different, but, you know, some people have a hard time understanding people too. Well, I think a lot of people, like, when you'd say, I don't want the fame, I don't want this, everyone just calls bullshit, <laughs> like, immediately, you know, no, because to the person Well, I mean, if I get in front of a big group of people, even just the announcement yesterday, like, I'm the type of guy, like, a voice kind of can start shaking a little bit, like, I don't want the eyes on me, I don't like yeah. it, like, yeah. I'm really uncomfortable with it, and I always have been. So that's what, you know, again, that's what was so hard with me on racing was doing like the sponsor events and, and certain things like that, because I literally, I love the people that respect the racing part I did and that they're fans and stuff like that. But in the same time, they also got to understand that like, Hey, I'm that, that simple, like yeah. I'm, not, I I'm a country boy that likes going fast, you know? And it's just, like I said, even school, like if I had to get in front of the class and kind of talk about something when I know that everybody's kind of looking like, I don't like it, yeah. you know, I kind of want to run that way. And, you know, some people just don't, just don't get it. Yeah. And and I just think that there's a level of, because people would kill to be in your position. Right. Mm-hmm. And, ev- and that's the kind They're of like, problem. smile, just smile. Yeah. I'm like I'm thinking this other stuff, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, it's just, well, you like Casey, for example, he's a, He's the person, genuine. I know him. I've known him for a very, very long time. Oh, he cracked. He, he does, like, when I won my first race, he was like, is this as excited you're going to get? I'm like, bro, stop breaking my balls in the press conference right now. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but he genuinely, genuinely, if he could have been two-time MotoGP champion mm-hmm. without anyone ever taking a picture of like, if he could He's have been the, if he could have been the Stig, yeah, he would have done of MotoGP. He would have done that. But yeah. I think a lot of people, because of, I think the more typical sports star, and especially in team sports, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you we get we're more used to sports stars in team sports than we are in individual sports. Yeah, and I think that to thrive in a team environment there's like well there's probably a lot of personal development that goes along your whole life like you played team sports like yeah. you're in a football team you're in a attractive whatever mm-hmm. and so we just get really used to that image of a sports star yeah whereas in our sport and in motorsport it's very very individual and to do the sport 
and to practice you're alone inside your helmet with your thoughts so yeah it's it's a very different type of person that can reach the top like that type of person yeah sure they might reach the top in team sports but it's way more of a social and i think we're used to seeing that mold so when you hear a guy like casey be like i would have done it without all everyone's like nah come on bro like that's not how this shit works but it's true but it's true yeah it's and genuinely I, and, true and, and just a lot of people you know they're just like why is it you know why don't you like it or why is it hard to do and it's kind of like i trust me i wish it was not like that <laughs> but that's how i am that's how i'm wired and you know, then you have some people that kind of go against it because they just don't understand you and they yeah. don't know how. And then it obviously gets a chip on your shoulder because you know that, you know, a third of the paddock is like, oh, he's, he's arrogant and he's this and that. It's like, no, I just I'm not a, a huge fan of a lot of humans, you know, <laughs> just that type of, you know, deal. And and again, I've always I've always said it like I respect love the fans and all this stuff. But I even love the fans more when they understand like that's him. Yeah. You know, he's. He's all about the racing. He's not all about this, but, you know, so. Well, for a guy that uh, doesn't like talking, you've just spoke for three hours and it's been amazing. And uh, See, that's, that's the part, again, that people, like, if you were my crew yeah. all through my, you know, career, they saw a different side. Yeah. But it's just, yeah, that's how it was. Well, I appreciate, it, man. It's been, uh, yeah, fantastic to uh, to sit and do this. And, yeah, thank you. You know, talking at the Alps party breakfast now, I feel like we could just talk forever so oh, yeah. uh i'm uh keen to come to texas awesome keen to do some riding i'll take you training i'll take the girls uh i'll take the girls to do some jiu-jitsu i'll put you on a horse I, i've never ridden a horse see i i have we have four horses and i i take care of them and everything but i'm i don't ride them really because they got a brain i don't know if i'm a horse guy eh? I, I again my my girls ride them i love being around them and just having them on the land we always had rescue horses and stuff but you know, I want to kind of ride them so I can cruise the property, but that that just not having a brain where yeah. I don't have direct control of it oh, yeah. messes me up. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm signing up to ride horses anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, maybe it'd be cool to do it, but fuck, it just seems scary. Seems They're big animals. I just got stepped on one my, the day before I was flying out here, and I was like, I hope it didn't just break my damn toe. <sighs> but that was good. But so. they're so they're so cool though. Like yeah. they're just beautiful animals. Yep. No, it's awesome. All right. Well, I'll see you in Texas. Yep. Awesome. <laughs> I'll put you on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yep. Hell yeah. Thank you, brother. Yeah.